Hi, everyone. Welcome to Project Herpetoculture Podcast. I'm your host, Roy Arthur Blodgett, and I'm joined, as always, by my intrepid co-host, Philip Leitz of Arids Only. We have an excellent show for you today, but before diving in, we have some brief housekeeping. So first, I'd like to thank Dylan and the Animals at Home Network for hosting our show. It continues to be a pleasure to be part of this platform. We'd also like to extend special gratitude to Charlie, who generously edits our audio and has done a lot to improve the quality of our show over time. And we'd also like to take a moment to tell you about our sponsors. So first, we have Custom Reptile Habitats, who have been with us since day one. They produce top-of-the-line PVC reptile enclosures, and I use them for a lot of the large format vivaria here. They're also carrying universal rocks, misking products, and a bunch of other useful stuff. So if you're in the market for any of that and you're planning to make a purchase, consider doing so through the link in our bio or description. We'll receive a small commission at no additional cost to you, and that really helps us keep the lights on over here. Up next, we have Fairy Tale Dragons. That's have a joint uh, venture between Heather Moy and Ron St. Pierre, both of whom have achieved legendary status in herpetoculture. They've accomplished quite a lot and produced some of the finest bearded dragons in Taliqua in the country, alongside a whole host of other species, species such as emerald tree boas and green tree pythons. Check them out if you're in the market for any of that, and be sure to follow along with them on social media. They're always up to something interesting over there. Next, we have Cold-Blooded Caffeine, roasters of delicious coffees from all over the globe. We have a private label with them, the PH Blend, which is a light roast coffee from Rwanda. It's a great choice for those who prefer a more floral coffee with notes of berry, but they have a wide variety of options for a broad array of preferences. So check them out. And if you place an order, don't forget to use the code PROJECTHERP for 10% off. We're also very pleased to have the support of Exoterra, a brand that needs no introduction. It's safe to say that herpetoculture wouldn't be where it is today without the influence of Exoterra. For decades, they've been industry leaders in innovation, offering just about everything needed for reptile care, from diets and supplements to enclosures, substrates, and lighting. We're both big fans of their naturalistic terraria and substrates in particular. They have a lot of interesting products in the works as we speak, and we're really looking forward to seeing what comes next. And next we have Tamura Designs. For those in the know, Tamura Designs is widely regarded as one of the finest enclosure manufacturers on the planet. They produce outstanding large format vivaria with endless options for customization, drains, UV printed backgrounds, lighting rigs. On, on top of all of that, they also make amazing deli cup displays for expos and these incredible multi-unit condos, which I use here. So if you're interested in any of that and you decide to make a purchase, Use the code HERPETOCULTURE for 15% off one item as a special offer to our listeners only. We also have Happy Dragons. We're really thankful to have the support of Happy Dragons. They are producing some amazing content for uh, bettering our reptile care. And we've been actually partnering with them to produce even more content like webinars. Um, also the platform and subscription service offers breeder access to um, first clutches, things like that. That We have online courses coming down the pipeline. In addition, we have live Q&As with reptile experts, such as Mariah Healy from Reptophiles. It's truly an outstanding um, subscription package um, that also offers discounts on um, their supply partners, such as Ovapost and Joss's Frogs. It's really an outstanding product. So check it out and um, let us know what you think. 
<clears throat> and last but not least, if you're interested in supporting the show directly with something of a tip or a monthly donation, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash projectherpetoculture. We have a monthly live chat there with all of our paid subscribers. That's been a whole lot of fun so far. Uh, we also have a whole line of merchandise like t-shirts, mugs, pint glasses, and more on our website. And of course, sharing the show with a friend, subscribing on YouTube, and keeping up with social media is always very helpful. And with all that said, we're on to the show. Thanks, everybody. Let's do it. The, the whole reason, all right? We, the whole reason we even say that, Stephen, is because there there have been like a non-zero number of episodes where I've drank <laughs> a decent amount of alcohol on the show, and it's like <laughs> get it's the weirdest thing to get the like most of the feedback. The positive feedback will be like Phil. When you were drinking on that one episode, it's so funny. Do it again. I'm like, <laughs> you guys can't do this to me. I guess this not. Meanwhile, I'm just over here, just like God help me. Yeah, Roy is just having a rough time, having it's to like, deal. I with mean, got to give the people what they ask for. I don't have much of a choice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. Oh yeah, let's go. You get it. It's all about ranking. All right, well, that's the that's the cold <laughs> open for y'all. And uh, this yeah. is episode <laughs> episode seventy three. We got Stephen Cush. Steven, welcome, man. Thanks for thanks for joining us tonight. Yeah, absolutely, man. Thank you, thank you guys for having me. This is uh, should be a good one. I'm excited. Yeah, me yeah, too. for sure. Us too. Absolutely. Yeah. So to start, let's uh, let's hear about your herpetoculture origin story. How did you get the affliction? How yeah. Did it so for you? Uh, it, it, it was kind of in you know writing was on the walls from from real early on. Um, you know when I was I mean younger than I can remember. Uh, I was fascinated with watching Steve Irwin on, on TV. Um, actually kind of funny when I was really young, one of my favorite pastimes with my dad was we had these like three, four foot rubber alligators and we would have them on one end of the apartment. We would tie them up, like tape their, their arms and stuff. We carry them to the other side of the apartment, let them go another pond. <laughs> um, and, uh, so that it was pretty apparent from, from very early on. And, uh, I bet for anyone who's been to a Tenley Park show before, like before like COVID, you would see uh, Bubba the alligators, like big adult male alligator sitting at the front of the expo. People would pay to like lay on him and take pictures and stuff like that. Perfect. And uh, Jim Nessie was the guy who who owned Bubba. That was what he did. He did uh, basically like an alligator show um, with this, you know, he would have, he had two Bubbas, uh, one and then it passed away. He got another one where he, he trained these alligators and they were just, and they were super docile, have them around kids. He would do theater shows and stuff like that. Um, just a, really interesting. And, and actually at my fourth birthday party, my, my parents got, uh, got Bubba the alligator for me. And I was all dressed up as Steve Irwin running around with the alligator. And um, <laughs> they, they probably should have known by then. Uh, but then kind of, I've had a few moments of like serendipity with the reptiles where it was like, it's kind of strange that that happened at that particular moment. Um, yeah. My my pediatrician growing up uh, was a very involved member in the Chicago Herpetological Society. Wow! And uh, when I was six years old, um, he was he had just taken over as the promoter of the uh, educational show they did called Reptile Fest. So imagine like probably like a third of the size of like Tinley Park or a quarter of the size pretty good size guys uh, size expo um it was at the uh, university of illinois at chicago uh, like gymnasium and there were probably realistically like 100 to 150 tables um 
where members would just bring their their animals just for educational purposes and uh at my like yearly checkup or whatever i it was obviously he was just promoting this to to all of his uh his clients but when he mentioned that it was like yeah we got to go to that so i went to that and went every year after that that was kind of like the moment where i was like all right i I'm going to end up having reptiles as pets. Yeah. Uh, but by then I already had like guinea pigs. It started off as what was supposed to be two females. There was a litter a few months uh -huh. later and then it just. <laughs> it, it I've heard this before. There, there were like 40 <laughs> oh. by the end. Um, and then uh, the, the snake obsession just kind of like started spontaneously one day. And I just started researching like mad. When I told my parents I want to get a snake, they're like, Wow, this is like just about the worst thing that could happen. Awesome. Um, and uh, I was nine years old when I got my first snake. And by then's when I was, I was all over YouTube watching videos. And I found like some of the early snake bites episodes and, uh, oh, wow. Yeah. And, and learned from those that this is actually, you can make a career out of breeding snakes. Sure. And, and uh, it was like a light bulb moment for me when I heard Brian say that on a video. I was like, I just found what I'm going to do. Um, <laughs> wow. So from there it was just, you know, researching, obviously that was my start. Ball pythons were the thing that kind of first hooked me in, but then through like reptiles magazines and stuff like that. And from that reptile show, a reptile, uh, best show, mm -hmm. I got introduced to a lot of other species and stuff like that. Started kind of expanding what I was interested in. And, uh, the second thing that really caught my eye was green tree pythons. Mm -hmm. So that was a much harder sell than the ball pythons for the for my mom based on like they have bigger teeth and they're not known to be tame animals um and then serendipity moment number three or whatever was uh in eighth grade i had to do or everyone had to do like an internship somewhere for two weeks before they graduated i wanted to do something related to reptiles so at the reptile fest show that year i was kind of like asking around as to, you know, where could I do an internship or whatever. And I got introduced to who ended up being my boss, Rob Carmichael from the wildlife discovery center, which oh, is yeah. a small zoo, essentially North of Chicago in a, a town called Lake forest. And, uh, I ended up doing my two week internship there. And, uh, I kind of, kind of snuck in because when I was 13 years old, I was about six, two and knew a bit about reptiles. So, I was there giving tours to people and stuff like that. And they're like, you want to come back next weekend and next weekend? I'm like, this is awesome. You know, all the, all the while I'm just giving them free labor. Uh, but mm -hmm. you know, that was fine by me. And uh, they didn't realize how young I was for a while. And then like, well, you've been here enough. You can, you can stick around. And then uh, tie into green tree pythons. Shortly after I started working there, they got in two Maruki green trees from a different zoo. Mm -hmm. And they were, God, were those snakes incredible. I mean, white all down the dorsal, very calm animals. And, and through those animals, that was like my, my sales pitch to my mom, like, look at these, they're not biting me. This one's crawling on my head. And then, uh, so green tree pythons, they had olive pythons there, fell in love with olive pythons, uh, kind of cascaded down all the pythons, um, until I, until I got to scrub pythons, which is where I ended up stopping. Um, and this is actually for me, kind of a, a, a cool moment of like perspective. 
I, there was a, a Tinley park that I, I saved up all my money over the summer from working yards, yada, yada, yada. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to blow all my money at Tinley park. And I had like target species I wanted to get. And, and really, I mean, I got some incredible stuff at that show, white lip pythons, uh, Paradigm Isle Python, Timor Pythons, Blue Beauty Snake, stuff I still have now. And at the end of the show, a friend of mine was holding a, a deli cup with a barneck scrub python in it. And I had known of scrub pythons. I hadn't, I didn't, hadn't extensively researched them, but I was under the assumption that they were big, aggressive, mean animals that just run everywhere, pee on you, bite you in the face. Um, right. But I saw how beautiful the snake was, and it really caught my attention. Within a, a couple weeks of that show, I'm, I'm, you know, in the back of class in high school researching every page that has any information on scrub pythons on the internet. And uh, between then and March, so that was October until March, Tinley did all of my scrub python research until I finally felt like I was ready to get my first scrub python. And just lucky enough on a, a like a Facebook page in the Chicago area that was like a like a pre Tinley classified something something. Someone had a baby bar next scrub python. I'm wow. like, this is perfect. Even if this thing is a little aggressive, it's small where I can work with it and whatnot. Um, and I, I still remember just like, I saw the guy with the, the snake in the deli cup. And the second I got the snake out of the cup, I was like, it was really a moment of like, I, I found my calling within mm -hmm. this field. It, it was it was instant. And what makes that even more special is I, I still have that snake today. He has sired two clutches for me and soon three, maybe four. So that amazing, uh, man. Yeah. So, but to me, if I had gotten that first Barnick at that October Tinley, when I hadn't done my research, I didn't have my full appreciation for him, would it have turned out the same way? And I guess yeah. there's, there's really no way to know that. But I, I think that most certainly had something to do with it that the anticipation, the delayed gratification, being more ready being more educated, I think set me up to kind of dive in as, as heavily as I did. Yeah. Yeah. Remind me, uh, how, how old are you now and how old were you at the time? I know you said a little bit, I just want to refresh her here. So I'm, I'm 23 right now. 23 now. And at what time? And at the time that you got this particular snake? Uh, I was 16. Okay, cool. Okay. Wow. Nice. Yeah. The reason, yeah. because like, I, I always wonder because it seems like they're always kind of, you know, I'd, I'd say the majority of people that we talk to on the show, there's always a gateway or a kind of origin, like this eureka moment sure. you know? or, or, or yeah. you know, maybe even a series of very important moments. Mm -hmm. But we always kind of remember a couple. Um, but For sure. part of the reason uh, I was asking about your age now is because it it seems like you've um, I mean, for 23, man, like. I'm more than I'm, I'm 14 years older than you. And, <laughs> you know, and you've, you've done, a, you've done a lot, you've done quite a, quite a lot. And, and you clearly have developed your work in such a way that it's quite impressive. And I think it's hard for people to do that at any point in their life. So I, I'd be curious to know a little bit before we dive into kind of what your a little bit about what your collection looks like and, and why it looks that way. Can, can you talk a little bit about the track where you went from, okay, I've gotten a snake, you know, I have this one, this, snake, oh, this is what I'm going to do forever. And how it yeah. evolved to become something that you do professionally. Well, you know, that's an interesting one for me because 
that thought was in my head really early on. Right. Um, so it was kind of always, it was always part of it. Um, it just kind of evolved as to how that would actually look because as anyone does, the, the first idea of what is a professional reptile breeder is rows of freedom breeder racks with solid gray tubs and sure. yada, yada, yada. Um, that, that experience with working at the wildlife discovery center was so critical at that moment for me because I mean, I walk into the venomous room, the first snake on the left, nine foot Bushmaster, six foot Emerald tree boa. It, Cohabbed with it, Mangshan vipers, king cobras, blacktail rattlesnakes, sidewinders, eyelash vipers, green mamba. Like, I mean, I, I, I didn't know this place existed before. I was a, I was a kid in the candy store. Right. So very quickly, I'm like, yeah, these ball pythons are cool. I might do this or that with them, but uh, you know, it, it was so apparent from like I, I was already heading that way, but just that hands-on experience, I guess, gave me the confidence to then pursue mm -hmm. that. I mean, you know, that I was, wasn't even in high school yet. And I'm, you know, working with like a 10 foot olive python, Sure. you know, anyone who interacts with an adult python, like an olive python like that, you, you by the end of your interaction, you, you can't say that you don't like that snake better than your ball pythons. It's physiologically speaking. Like mm -hmm. that, that's not a more engaging animal to, to interact with. Um, and then I guess as I was kind of going through, you know, trying to figure out how to make this work, um, I was kind of like, okay, who, who has been the most successful historically within this field? Uh, like in ball pythons, at this point, hands down, the most successful guy ever, Justin Kabelka. Um, what did Justin do that, that set him apart? Yeah. And not only, I mean, no one was able to market as well as him, but the biggest thing that he did from like a ball Python perspective was he got in, himself invested into the double recessive projects when everyone else was still doing, what does a cinnamon do a lesser make? That's a cinnamon yeah. lesser. I'm going to take an albino to my spider. Like, you know, everyone was just like, okay, what's the next thing that has been made so I can make a quick buck on it with the double recessive projects and all, okay, now we're eight years out Add another one. We're 16 years out. Well, now we're that far later. And this guy has a garage full of Porsches and everyone else can't pay their feeder bill. Um, yeah. and, and that's obviously not the ultimate goal of doing this, but he started the trend. He didn't follow it. He, he saw something was, was brewing there and was like, all right, how, how do I make this my own? And now how do I communicate to people that this is where the value is? Because I mean, at the end of the day, these animals don't really have any intrinsic value. It's all just the value that's placed on them by supply and demand. So right. it's all about communicating to your buyer one way or another, whether it be this is going to make you a lot of money or this is the most incredible species. If you don't work with this, you're missing out on, on an experience. Um how do you deliver that message better than the next guy? And I was like, you know, same thing with reticulated pythons, carpet pythons, water monitors, crested geckos, leopard geckos. I mean, hearing some of the early stories of, of leopard geckos where they had outdoor troughs with 200 females, they put a male in there. And then a few, like a couple months later, they're just digging up handfuls of eggs. Like, yeah, it just sounded really, it just sounded really fun. 
Like yeah. it sounds mm-hmm. fun to be on, on the cutting edge of a, of a new project. Yeah. Um, money aside, but then I also think that's where the money is. Um, and for me, when I found the scrub pythons, I, I, I saw that kind of opportunity and then to do it in a way that I would be happy with where I feel like I'm not compromising myself from a moral standpoint, not compromising the animals. Cause like with mainland reticulated pythons, for example, I mean, just, just consider the handful of the biggest mass producers. How many thousands of those snakes get produced every single year? A, a ton. Yeah, and how many lot. adults yeah. do you see? How many adults do you see? Basically none. Right. Yeah. Very few. Essentially none. Like, like a 20 foot reticulated Python is seen as like a gem. Yeah. yeah. There are about thousands of them. Yeah. 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 Why does this one 20 foot reticulated Python, which all of these animals have the capacity to achieve, why is this so special when Jay Brewer just hatched 5,000 last year? Yeah. And like 4,000 of them went to Japan or whatever and all probably died. Like this, this, this is something that it's like, this is so near and dear to my, my thinking and my, my curiosity in this industry. It's like, we have, I don't, I don't think there's any, well, okay. From the limited surface level experience that I have uh, as an observer of herpetoculture, there is a huge question out there about so many animals, which is where do they all go? Mm -hmm. Where the fuck do they go? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like, um, you know, we hear all these statistics about wild caught animals and we have num- we have, we have data available around how many wild caught animals hit, hit the shores of the United States, which is yeah. great. It's useful information. And we, and we have all this conjecture around how many of those animals die in their first year. And then you have account different accounts on on various social media platforms suggesting well maybe it's this many well maybe it's not as many as we think who knows right but when it comes to the the captive stuff like we i know people who produce i know individuals who produce hundreds maybe thousands of sulcatas every single year where are the thousands of 500 pa- or 400 pound tortoises ripping around? You know what I mean? And even if they, even, yeah. even knowing that, you know, surely we have to account, there should be some way of accounting for that stuff in some way, just to have some information, just the data would be good to know because yes, surely a, a big percentage of a lot of those animals go over, overseas. Right. Mm-hmm. But then out of the ones that stay in the United States, it would still be so cool. It would be really, really interesting to get that information and to understand more about it. Right. Um, anyway, I didn't, I didn't mean to cut you off. I know you were kind no, of getting for sure. And, and, uh, you know, to me, that was part of, of the thought process as well. Um, you know, I, I think unfortunately, uh, you know, a lot of the most popular species, the, the, the cell is okay. This is what this morph goes for. This is what this locality goes for. Yeah. They breed in, in so long. They have a litter or a clutch of how many the babies will all be worth this much. You can quit your job in two years. Sure. Um, and the amount of times that that actually works. This can be ball pythons, retics, crested geckos, leachion. Like it could be anything. Yeah. The amount of people who actually pull it off are you know it's it's not a high number um and then 
another thing that that I I think is is important, especially these days. Um, there have been some examples, uh, you know, over the last probably decade or so. Some pretty glaring examples of people who had a very successful reptile breeding business decided to take it to the next level, and then that was their downfall. Mm-hmm. You know, in, increase your overhead five tenfold to be able to produce five to tenfold. These are live animals. It doesn't yeah. just go that way. Um, yeah, because- I mean, I, you know, I was in the rodent industry for the better part of five years, and I know firsthand from that, you can only really take that so far in one facility mm-hmm. or stuff. Just there's too, there's too much margin for error. As soon as you have to bring in large numbers of employees, nonetheless, employees, and then a manager, that's not you, especially right. reptiles, rodents are it's rats in particular, are a lot more resilient, but as soon as you're doing that with actual reptiles that require specified care, specified, yada, 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 everything that we all know. Your, your margin for error increases so dramatically, you know, let's, what if you have one, a, a clutch of expensive snakes that was supposed to pay your bills for November and December, your employee messes it up and they all die. Oh yeah. They plug in, they, they plug a, a rack right into the wall instead of into a thermostat in the morning, they are baked. Yeah. What are you going to do? Take out a second mortgage now? Right. Like there, there comes to a point where there's, there's real life dollars and cents here. And mm-hmm. the, the profit margin potential when you are just yourself is so much higher than when you are you and five employees and a website person and a filmer and yada, yada, yada. And it's reduced, it's reduced points of failure. Right. right? So you, you have, have less of a need for contingency when you, it's just you. Right. And I mean, technically, obviously if you overwhelm yourself, then your, your risk of failure goes up, but yeah, I mean, sure. And, and again, I, I, again, I apologize. I don't mean to interrupt and derail you. I'm not trying to change the, no, not anything. at all. But yeah, I mean, you can, you can move. I moved down, I moved 15 minutes down the block when I moved into the, into the facility space that I'm in now, mm-hmm. 15 minutes down the road. And it's a diff, it's a totally different space with different requirements and different upkeep. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, we've heard we actually, yeah. we just had uh, Eddie Soto on for, for another episode recently. And he, he was saying the same thing, like what he does in his current yard, he couldn't do in a yard two doors down. It would be different, you know, because right. he's, he's keeping outdoors, you know, yeah. but it, it's the same concept. Like there, you said it very well there, which is that there's so many variables and things that you have to take into consideration, the, the ceiling height and how that affects your seasonal temperature, temperature changes. I mean, that changes, that can change everything with just a couple feet of extra d- distance from, from the ground to ceiling. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and another thing that I, I think then now ties back into the ethics of it, you know, let's say, let's say I, I sell corn snakes, for instance. Okay. Um, I sell corn snakes as just myself. I'm breeding my own rodents. It's in my garage. So there's no extra facility. How many, you know, uh, let's say I need to sell a hundred corn snakes a year to pay my bills, make a living, be comfortable. Okay. Now I add in a facility. I add in two employees. I add in a budget for marketing and sales because now everything doesn't sell the way that it, it used to. The, the increase in animals I need to produce is, is not linear. It's exponential mm-hmm. at that point. Right. And then how many more animals are you sending to their potential death or selling to a, a customer that you don't necessarily want to sell to or right to a wholesaler. Like you have 
so much less control over where those animals actually go. So in the first, like going from that hundred snake, whatever to the facility, you're not doing that because you, once you have some experience in this, you're not doing that because you just love them that much where you need that many more. Right. When you have that many more, you spend less time with each one. It's work. I mean, you know, back when, when I was working with Forrest Fanning, I was managing my collection, doing stuff with his collection. I mean, I had like five to 600 reptiles at one time I was taking care of. Right. And I hated my life. It was mm-hmm. absolutely terrible. And I, I'm still currently above where I'd want to be numbers wise. Mm-hmm. And I enjoy it so much more and I'm more successful breeding. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the pursuit of that facility, that big operation, I, I think for most people, especially once you scale to the point of needing employees and, and whatnot, is just a pursuit of money. And mm-hmm. it doesn't even work. Like, mm-hmm. it, it, it fails unless you have a pet store or a feeder business or other investment in real estate, unless you have something else to bankroll your life, that mm-hmm. works worse than the, the garage full of snakes. Yeah. You just have more opportunity to produce, you know, oh, I'm breeding 300 females instead of 80. Okay. Good, good for you. You know, you're really, you're really, you're providing something to us furthering the, this, this industry like mm-hmm. that, you know, n- no one gains anything of, of true value and meaning. From, from scaling that way, except for the the goal of potentially making more money, which which especially these days just doesn't happen. Yeah. It definitely, it definitely takes on more of an industrial aesthetic at that point. And it it does yeah. it, it 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 starts to feel more like um like farming, like the kind of you know, like the uh the kind of farming not too far from where you're living in Texas. <laughs> you know? yeah. I'm, I've I'm driven, driven through it. Yeah, we've all driven through those areas where it's like, you know, look, and some of it, I get it. Sometimes you have to scale, right? Sometimes scale matters, means something, but it's like, right. you know, but they, I think maybe not in this exact context, you know, um, you mentioned something earlier too, and I hope this doesn't change the subject too much. It's not intended to, but you mentioned uh, learning initially about some of the early leopard gecko breeders where they put a bunch of, fem- you know, a couple hundred females in a pen, throw one male in there and in about a month, dig up handfuls of eggs and whatnot. I, I remember reading through the original bearded dragon manual by Philippe de and, and Bob Mayhew and all mm. the photos of the way they were doing stuff out at Sandfire Dragon Ranch back in the day used to just, boy, man, that used to just really do it for me. You know, it was just like, this is the coolest shit in the world. Seeing these, these huge outdoor pens, with creative setups and creative decor. And, 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 um, you know, I actually, I, part of why I think this fits in is because of what you were saying about, you know, if you really want to know where the money is, it's in that area. And, and I think that it's, it's not just the cutting edge, right. It's, it's not just being at the forefront of, of what you do in terms of how you're doing it. It's also in like the, um, the almost like artisanal, uh, hyper-specialized, hyper-high quality, you know, like in some ways, um, you know, for example, we had on, uh, John Scarborough of Gecko Boa Reptile. He's one, you know, leopard gecko, leopard gecko breeder. I'm sure you're familiar. He, yeah. he's an example of a guy who I always think about who it's like, he got into a market that was already just full to the brim, it, you know, at least conceptually, we all think about mm-hmm. leopard being this totally full market, but there's a guy who, who got in and, 
through sheer will in some, you know, in hard work and, and good ethics and good practice, he really carved out a niche for himself inside of a market that already existed. And by yeah. doing so, by doing things that were very outside the realm of, of, of the norm, you know, he talked about um, on the show, he talked about testing his entire collection for crypto and how, you know, it cost it like cost him like 20 grand or something like that. Yeah. Probably mm-hmm. But it's like, what, what, what industrial scale breeder can do that? You know, it's like, you, you can't do that. <laughs> you know, right. mm. it's an interesting, it's a cool distinction that you're making. I, I, you know, I'd love to hear more about this. Um, this is a really cool topic to me. Yeah. I just, you know, I feel like the, the smaller scale people who are, are the most successful mm-hmm. have kind of, you know, they, they found a way to do something that sets them apart. Like another person who, um, you know, I'm friends with and I, I admire his work, Brian Seuss on Sundown Reptiles. Oh yeah, we- same, same kind of deal. Where yeah. you know, I mean, right now, aside from all the geckos and stuff he's doing, he's probably the the predominant tree monitor breeder in in the country. Um, yeah, and if not, you know, even at a broader scale, um, you know, the the abronia that he's been producing are incredible, and then you know, all all the geckos like. I find find me someone with a similar profile to Brian Susan. Right. Right. I, I don't yeah. I don't think there is that Brian Susan number two. And right. he's someone who is very successful in what he does. And and his enclosures are beautiful, they're well kept, his animals are healthy, like yeah. he can stand behind his work and, and be proud of it. I mean, you know, everyone who I've seen post about animals from him, they're always you know very happy. They're they're you know thanking oh, yeah. him. The animals look super healthy, like someone like that. And actually he, he was at the wildlife discovery center a little bit before I was. So we had, we have some of that history there. Um, nice. So shared lineage. Yeah. So, so someone like that is someone who I, I see being successful, carving out his own niche in, in a market that mes- maybe necessarily wasn't even really there to start, you know, right. Who, 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 who's going to say that, you know, you produce captive bred tree monitors, sell them for double to sometimes triple what imports come in as. And, and that that's not a guarantee sellout every time. Right. So you, you need to show the value, prove why it's worth it, prove why you're, you know, why you care so much about it. And then be able to then translate that over to the, you know, tell that to the customer in a way that gets them excited about it. And, you know, as they should for something like that, you know, tree monitors are, they're incredible. Um, <laughs> But they're also a species that that you know 10, 15 years ago probably weren't talked about all that much. You know, at a at a Tinley Park or a Pomona, you probably don't have many tree monitor side conversations breaking out with people. Right. Um, but then more more notoriety, people showing them just for what they are. Right. And that's like something that I like to do with 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 my animals. You know, n- never have I and I and I won't ever, and also I probably can't right now, advertise scrub pythons as this is the next big Python market. Mm-hmm. Get in before they're twice as expensive as they are now. Like, because one, I, I, it's, that's just a false promise because this has never been a, a market that has been commercial, has been sustainable. You know, they've been bred throughout time, but nobody's ever really done it consistently. No one's ever done it professionally. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. But what I do know is that they're my favorite animal in the entire world. And I have a lot of reasons why that is. And I know I can tell people why that is. 
And I know that from people who I've sold snakes to, they've told me like, Hey, I, this is my favorite snake in my collection now. That's awesome. Like it took, it took two weeks. And now this is the favorite, my favorite reptile I've ever owned. Um, and that to me is what this is all about. If, if I was, if I was just in it for money, I would have gone into real estate and stocks, become a doctor. Like, you know, there, there's so many better ways to make money than breeding reptiles. Mm-hmm. And if we've seen like the COVID ball python crash like, or like the, the surge in, in COVID, like people are home, they have money now. They find YouTubers and they're like, well, I'm going to breed ball pythons. <laughs> the ball python market takes mm-hmm. a turn. I'm selling all my ball pythons. Oh no. Right. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, and you don't see people doing that with tree monitors. And I hope that I never see people doing that with scrub pythons of, I'm going to buy a whole big collection. I'm going right. to sell a whole big collection. Like, right. cause that, that only hurts the animals at the end of the day. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, right. every, every time any animal changes hands unnecessarily, it just, I mean, even, even necessarily, you know, if you ship an animal, you're putting that animal inherently at some degree of risk. Oh yeah. yeah. We've done a lot these days to minimize that risk. And that, you know, that risk is, is virtually zero now uh, mm-hmm. with advances in shipping but it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. And then, you know, maybe you take like, like for me, for instance, you know, I, I came from the Midwest experience a cold winter, higher humidity. Um, I'm essentially in the desert in the mountains now. Yeah. Totally different climate. Definitely very different elevation. Humidity is really different. Summers will be a lot hotter. You know, it's a, it's an adjustment for, for these animals. Some like my rattlesnakes, this is quite literally is where they come from. They'll do probably a lot better here than they did back in the Midwest. My scrub pythons, on the other hand, they're a tropical species. Yeah, you know, they're like, where's the humidity, during, man? <laughs> during parts of the year, it rains every day where they come from. Like, it, you know, this is very much a different c- scenario. And, you know, within moving, inevitably, I, I, I put my animals at some degree of risk just because you did, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. But, Right. Minimizing the number of times that this animal has to get shipped from point A to point B is probably going to be best for that animal. So if you kind of can can cultivate a customer base of people who aren't just getting this animal for, okay, in three years, I'm going to breed it. I'm going to have 10 babies. Those babies are going to be $1,000 a piece. And then I'm going to pay off my car. Like, yeah. If, if the If the first motive is I want to experience these animals because this is something I'm passionate about. I'm fascinated by these animals. I want to set them up in an elaborate enclosure, you know, be able to see how they act during the day, how they act at night, just have something that's that I enjoy and do what's right for the animal. If that's the main focus, all of those risk factors get minimized so much more because it's not, it's not a, a commodity. It's not a number on a spreadsheet. It's, I mean, it's a pet. It's a pet that you can break even on make money on or breed for fun, sell babies, trade, you know, like it's, there will always be that, that, that aspect of this. But I think a lot of it just comes down to what's the root of the motive. Yeah. And I think that's cultivated by the people at the top. Um, you know, like, like a big one is like what's the super door particulated Python craze. You know, those are, those are great snakes. And unfortunately mm-hmm. there's people in that field who are not such great people. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, a, a handful of people were caught red-handed 
completely misidentifying animals, selling a mutt normal whatever as a pure Kalatoa to mm. a new keeper for two grand when that snake realistically is probably not even worth $150. It's nine feet yeah. in a year. And they're like, oh no, that person dumped a snake that they certainly made no money on. Now this yeah. person has no idea what they're going to do with it. It's going to end up in a rescue or it's going to be mistreated and die. Like, mm-hmm. But that all was because of how that interaction started. Yeah. If, if the seller had a different motive, the, the end point for the animal could have been drastically different. But when money is the driving force of, of that sale, mm-hmm. or of, I guess, and not even sale, just like that, that animal switching hands. Yeah, yeah. Then, you, you know, you, you, set, you set the animal up for failure in the end. And if, if this is what we're doing it for, if we're, if we're doing it because we love these animals, that should be the last thing you'd want to have happen to that, that animal. Right. No matter how much it's costing you to feed it. Yeah. Right. Right. Well said, man. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to just fill up my, my water bottle real quick. I, I Go for it. You're right back. Up. So, I mean, it's really cool to hear your thoughts on all this stuff. And um, I think that we're going to be meandering through kind of broader, you know, herpetoculture topics like this as we go. But yeah. um, since we're in a kind of a natural transition moment, I'm curious about just like hearing a little bit more, I guess, about where your collection is at currently. What does it consist of? What are your primary focus is, you know, um, obviously the scrubs. Um, I'd love to hear more about the scrubs. Why? I want to hear your pitch for them. Why are they your favorite animals? Um, but also, yeah, what else is out there? What else has your heart in terms of the, in terms of the animals you're keeping? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I've been very fortunate that I've been able to work with at this point, hundreds of different species of reptiles. So I've, I've had yeah. hands-on experience of trying to whittle down where, what my favorites are, uh, you know, tons of snakes, lizards, abronia, monitors, crocodilians, mm. bunch of colubrids, venomous, yada, yada, yada. Um, so obviously, yes, the, the scrub pythons are uh, my number one focus. Um, but I also have, have a pretty decent sized collection of, uh, of montane venomous snakes, primarily rattlesnakes. Um, you know, a bunch of different species from, you know, the Southwest U.S., from Mexico, a uh, bunch of different locality types from within those species. Um, and then... Uh, some other some other viper species so some palm vipers i have both uh side striped palm vipers and honduran palm nice. vipers honduran palm vipers i I produced those last year um cool. so that was a, that was a really cool moment i have some mangshan vipers as well which i i really love um and then i have a few colubrid species uh you know roy and i have definitely had some conversations about our mutual love of spilotes yeah. um i have some pilatus mexicanus a pair of sulfurus uh, a few different other stuff like some beauty snakes and you know mexican pine snakes you know some other cool stuff that i really like and those then there's a couple those uh, those mexican yeah. pines i love those they're, yeah, they're so i mean possibly the single most underrated colubrid snake yeah. to me that's like that's like the ideal pet snake oh yeah they're, sure. they're super they're, robust they're really good pet snake mexican pine snakes do not get nearly as big as as the you know u.s localities and species i mean my adults are like five feet long about that thick around like they're not big snakes they're super colorful they're not tiny little dainty babies they eat fuzzies their first meal they're i mean they never bite like to me that's that's like 
you know, I, I feel good putting that in the hands of a 10 year old, you know, me, oh, yeah. me back when I was a kid, I, if I was someone who was guiding me at nine years old, I've been like, this would be a good snake to start with. Yeah, um, for sure. That's, that's some, you know, I, I, I love those actually, I just brought it up out of brumation two days ago. So hopefully we'll get another clutch again this year. That would be very cool. Nice. Um, but then a couple of the pythons, I have a pair of olive pythons, a pair of Halmahera reticulated pythons and a green, my first green tree Python that I've, I've had for like 12 years now. So or 10 years, nice. something like that. So pretty, I mean, I, I have a lot of snakes and, uh, probably too many, uh, to where, you know, it's not overwhelming to where I can't take care of it, but I'd like to be able to just focus more space for certain projects and mm-hmm. more my, my energy and my attention. Um, but yeah, this is where, where I'm at right now. And I'm, 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 I mean, I couldn't be happier with, with the collection of animals I have. Um, you know, you told me six years ago, this is why I'd be six years from now. I would have told you straight up that you were a liar. So mm-hmm. this is a very, very fortunate place that I get to be in with my animals. That's awesome, man. Man. It, what, what are some of the, what are some of the, the, like, I don't know if you have, I'm sure it's not standardized in any way, but what are some of the things that, that draw you that, that, that make you say, okay, this is a project that I'm committing to that I'm staying with. Is it merely, mm-hmm. I love these things, period. Is that all it takes for some, or do you have other considerations that you, that you throw into the mix to make those kinds of decisions? That, that is my only single criteria. That's it. Just the one. Nice. No other criteria. I mean, like okay. this is something I, I tell people all the time. My my most profitable project ever from a percentage is my Vietnamese blue beauty snakes. Yeah. Mm. I, I bought my adults as babies for 150 bucks a piece. I've had four clutches from them. I've sold every baby. I've made thousand percent, thousands upon thousands of percents of return on my my income or on, on my investment. Mm. Like yeah. you know, obviously one pair of blue beauty snakes is not a ton of money, but just like but what if yeah. what if that was a thing that I focus on? I'm like, I'm the beauty snake guy now. Those are some of the as the namesake states, some of the most beautiful snakes in the entire world. Oh yeah. And they're they're not very expensive, all things considered. They're definitely mm-hmm. a bit more expensive than they were five, ten years ago. Um right. but all the more for the Chinese beauty snakes, the you know, Taiwan, the new Grabrowski eye that that showed up a few years ago. Like there's a yeah. that's a big space that is probably that's kind of wide open. There's there's some old timers that are really doing it, but unfortunately right. in, in this day and age you need to be on social media just about every day to, to, to promote what you're doing properly, you know, to, to, to keep up. Um, so I guess that was kind of a bit of a deviation, but. No, it's okay. But, um, I totally lost where we were, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's plenty of other things that, that I have that I, I love to keep and, and okay, I found it again. So yeah, the, the only single one criteria is that, I love whatever that species is and I want to, I want to keep it. There's, there's not another consideration at all. Okay. Well, okay. Space. Okay. Space. I, I can't have well, a saltwater. Sure. Crocodile. I'd love yeah. a saltwater crocodile. I mean, I guess, I, I guess mean, wouldn't we all, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess I meant, uh, I guess it was, it was a little bit of a vague question on my part, but the reason I ask is because I feel like we all have various criteria that we're using to judge, you know, which projects stay and which projects go, you know, for example, and you mentioned the Mexican pines being such a, you know, they don't get too huge. They're great pets. 
blah, blah, you know, you had all these really great accolades that you would attribute to, to, to those snakes. And, you know, thinking from my own perspective, you know, uh, over the years I've made decisions, you know, for a long time, I had a very similar perspective to you where I was like, look, I, if I want to work with the animal, I'm going to do it. And then over the last couple of years, I've, I've made a lot of changes specifically because one of the criterion that changed for me was I'm no longer going to work with animals that are very difficult for the average person to give a high standard of care to, you know? Mm. So I, so I, I, I donated my adult Egyptian Euromastics to Thai Park in Florida. Um, I, I only, I, all of my Moroccan Euromastics, I sold off, um, my, my banded Euromastics, I sold off because they, they're all a little bit too big and a, a little bit too difficult for people to give like a very high level of care to. Um, yeah. I restructured and re-emphasized um, other projects such as like Xenogama Tayloride. You know, they're they're very small, as I'm sure you know. And you know, so for me, that became like this big piece of, um, you know like a big, a big reason for why I want to keep them around. And I'm always really curious because we all have the, all of all of our various constraints that we're operating under, whether it's, as you just mentioned, space, which seems to be a pre at a premium for everybody all the time. Like space is always the biggest commodity that nobody has enough of somehow. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, sometimes it's, it's money. Sometimes it's, you know, like for another example would be abronia. I had one pair of abronia, abronia lithrochilla briefly, and they didn't work well here because it gets too hot. You know, it's mm -hmm. in the space that I have. It's meant yep. for desert reptiles. It's not going to work for the abronia, right? right. Um, same thing with some phymaturus. And, and these are always various constraints that we're having to kind of work around. And I think that the constraints that each of us is operating under are both interesting and revealing of like, not just our priorities, but like how we're setting ourselves up uh, in terms of a functioning operation. So I always think it's really interesting to hear about how people are putting these things together, you know? For sure. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I think that is definitely a, a very important consideration. Um, you know, I mean, I, I'm breeding snakes that get big, you know, yeah. mm -hmm. scrub pythons, average adult size for most of them is about 10 feet long. That's not a small snake by any means. No. It's not a berm. It's not a green anaconda. It's not a retic, but it surely is not a Mexican pine snake. Um, mm -hmm. So that, you know, that to me is is definitely a heavy consideration um, as far as, okay, I'm, I'm selling a snake that's more on the intermediate to advanced side. Um, this won't be for everybody, but then it'll be, you know, it, it's in my hands as much as I, as much as it possibly can to set that person up for the greatest amount of success with that animal. Um yeah. You know, I, I always prefer to make deals with people who reach out to me first. I, I don't, I like to advertise as little as possible as far as animals for sale go. Um, to me, if somebody is going out of their way to see if I have anything available to begin with, mm -hmm. that to me is someone who has, they're, they're, they're more than likely, they've thought about this for longer. They realize that what these snakes are, they've, you know, they've, followed my page they've seen me mm -hmm. post adults um and you know oftentimes people who will just reach out to me ask really good questions and they i mean and i have someone right now who you know just just bought some uh neonates off of me who's already purchased his adult caging mm -hmm. i'm like that's probably a little unnecessary but i could have waited a couple of years but that foresight is incredible 
I, I mean, sure. I wish I could, I wish I could say that I had done that for almost anything that I have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. For yeah. so like, real. Yeah. 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 Like, oh, uh, I'm, I'm buying these babies. All right. Time to buy the six by two by four. Oh. Yeah, dude. Oh, I feel so embarrassed to admit how many times that's been the case. <laughs> My God. I, I've i just been like, yeah, it's fine. They're, they're arriving tomorrow. I'll figure it out. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I mean, of course, I've never been negligent of any of my things, but it's just one of those things where like, all right, I yeah. guess I'm on some space for some yeah. butterfly commas. All right, I've, fine. Yeah, I've, I've, I've done that way more times than I, I'd like to admit. Um, mm-hmm. But then also, you know, people like us, we, we're not going to be short-sighted on on the, the, the health of these animals. And we know that too. Obviously, we're in control of our own situation. Whereas opposed to, you know, we were sending that snake out. Um, but it's just, you know, to me, if someone's like, yeah, you know, I, I keep carpet pythons and red tail boas and I have, I have an olive python, like that's, that's clearly somebody who, you know, they probably listen to podcasts. They probably watch YouTube videos. They, they've done the research. They even know what these snakes are to begin with. Um, yeah. You know, I, I have a, a my, my hot takes on shows and whatnot, but that is one plus of, of online sales is you're not just walking up to a table and saying, I want that little thing right there when you're buying yeah. something online. Um, and especially if it's not like on morph market or on King snake, if it's not some sort of aggregate page, if you're going out of your way to find a breeder, chances are, you know what that animal is. Um, right. And especially, you know, like the stuff that we work with, there's a price range, but these aren't, throw away cheap animals. If you're willing to spend over a thousand dollars, two thousand dollars, three thousand dollars on an animal, chances are you're also willing to spend enough money to provide that that setup. If you have that disposable income, you can afford feeders, you know. Yeah. There and and that's not to price people out of the market, but if you can, you know, there's animals you can buy reptile shows for twenty, thirty dollars. You know, find me almost anyone, just a patron at that reptile show who's going to take actual adequate care of that twenty, thirty dollar animal they bought off a flipper table. Yeah, I mean, that, that's that's a really, really low number. Right. Oh, dude. Yeah. I mean, it 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 has always baffled me to some degree, to one degree or another, that like you can go to a reptile shop anywhere in the country. And you can find an animal like a like a fully living, functioning, breathing animal that requires a decent amount of attention and care for like twenty five dollars. And it's like, nope, that's that's just yeah. not right. It just doesn't. How? I mean, it, you know, it, yeah. uh, it 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 is a very peculiar peculiar thing, you know. And um, you know, you mentioned your uh, our mutual friend Brian Susan, who it's like. Mm-hmm. One of the things I admire about the way he does things, especially with those tree monitors, is I think I think he and I have a have a I, we'll call it a similar uh, market niche, and you know I would say that the the way he works with the tree monitors is is sort of allegorical to the to the way I, I do work with the Euromastics in the sense that he produces a high quality captive bred animal that he prices sufficiently higher than the imports to ju- and it's a justified price tag. And I think mm-hmm. he does, I think just to be clear, I think in many ways, in almost every way, Brian does an incredible, like way better job than I do, like in, in, in an infinite number of ways, just, just to be hundred percent clear about that. But like it can, and I think he's, he's positioned himself in a way, uh, 
and has has conducted his his business in a way that's been better than mine because I still I still have to bicker from time to time with customers who are like, well, I can just go buy this one over this or this ornate Euromastics over here for three hundred fifty dollars. I'm like, yeah, it's a wild caught animal. Sure, that's fine. Go do it. Go buy it. Like I encourage you yeah. to do, you know. And it's it's I'm. I'm certainly not complaining because I find myself in a better position than many folks making an effort to work with Euromastics at the moment, but it, it's still, it can still, it can still be bizarre when you find yourself having to make those arguments. It's like, mm. there's, you know, there's no governing body that is preventing all these wholesalers and flippers from marketing their obviously wild caught Euromastics as captive bred. Right. And then I have to, it, yeah. they're not the ones who have to suffer for it. I am. I'm the one that has to suffer for their lie in marketing. Mm-hmm. I'm the one who has to explain to the, the average customer that's not a captive bred animal, but they put, but there's the seller says it's captive bred. It's like, yes, I get it. I understand. And I, I'm, let me explain to you all the reasons why it's not captive bred. And I can even tell by looking at it that it's oh, not yeah. captive. You know, and and it's those are hard battles to fight, and and you know, it's it's so interesting that there uh, there are so few people who have have kind of taken that angle and taken that leap. But um, oh man, I totally will blame it on the whiskey, but I actually can't. I lost my train of thought entirely. I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, you know, I think it's that's a good a good point because that is the struggle of anybody who works with a species that is either commonly or with any sort of regularity available as an import uh, is, is, uh, you know, communicating to a potential customer. What, what makes my captive bred animal different from this wild caught animal? Some Mm. species it's much easier to do than others. Um, and, And, you know, at the end of the day, that person who is being confrontational about, well, let me just go over here. It's probably not the person you want buying from you anyway. Um, uh, yeah. You know, totally. and I think for me, I'm, I'm in a, in a fortunate position where I, you know, I'm, I'm definitely not the only person breeding scrub pythons. I'm the person breeding the most scrub pythons and probably the person posting on the most people just see from the animals. I post the difference. Mm-hmm. Right. And you know, one thing that, you know, I, I really, I can't say I've ever had, I had one person one time, uh, message me. I didn't have anything available. He's like, how much are you going to sell your, your captive bread bar next for? I told him the number and he's like, well, that's, that's way too high. Blah, 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 blah. And in my head, I'm like, one, I don't even have any available. Yeah. So, right. You asked me, yeah. right. I'm not, I'm not pitching you. And three, Buy him from the other guy, right? Yeah. Go buy a person. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yes, okay. <laughs> like cool. I, I, you know, I don't value your opinion, but you're you're welcome to it, and you can act on it, and mm-hmm. we won't be making a transaction. And yeah. I think we're both happy about that. There right. you go. <laughs> I mean, listen, done and done. <laughs> I, I I agree with everything you said. I really do, and I do think that. Uh, there are individuals who there are folks who maybe just don't know any better and and it's not their fault. I don't, I don't mean to call no, them dumb or anything. It's just that they're, they're still learning. Maybe they don't know about how difficult it is to produce captive bread or an eight year right? Or, or how difficult mm-hmm. it is to produce 
beautiful, high quality captive bred scrub pythons, or, you know, you name it, you name the animal. And, and I feel like, I feel like a duty to elaborate on why what I have is more expensive. I mean, you, you name and not you, not you, Steven, but name a, name a person with, with, with these animals, with captive bred ornates that are as nice or like, they're just not there. They're just not it's not there. You're never going to get mm-hmm. the, kind, and it's not even just the, the quality of the animal. I know that this is something speaking for all three of us and every other person we've had on this damn podcast, everyone else is also going to give you the support that those importer exporters are never going to give you. You can mm-hmm. message any one of us anytime on Instagram. And if you've bought from us, we're going to give you the goddamn time of day. Our time yeah, is for sure. Our time is not free or useless, the time that we've taken to make sure that not just that we're successful so you can buy the animal, but so that we're going to, but the fact that we're going to dedicate the time to help you so that you're successful with your animal too, you should be willing to pay for that, you know? And I, and I, God, man, I'm telling you, I really feel I don't know. I I get the impression that there's enough people thinking at a high level about, about what we do, that it, it doesn't seem that weird that in 20 years, the market's going to look really different. And the, and, and the, the, the kinds of people that buy and why they buy and who they buy from, I think is going to not look like identical to the way that it looks now. It already feels like it's different. If you ask me, I I, I sure hope so. You know, I, I'd love to be able to walk into a reptile show one day and there'd be, 20% 20% ball pythons in the room, sure. you know, you know, tables full of people with actual captive bread, this and that, and the other thing, um, you know, that's to me, at least that, that table, whatever that table is, makes the show. Um, <laughs> the, you know, Tinley park in the late two thousands, early 2010s to me and to a lot of people, that was the Condro coalition table, which I mean, literally it was like the, you know, five, six, seven tables on the back wall of the show, all designer captive bread green tree pythons and the people who produced them right behind the table in right. beautiful displays with good lighting, showing the animals off like that. That to me is like, you know, that should, I feel like that should be something that all of us aspire to as breeders of like, let's be that show, that table at the show that everyone mm-hmm. walks away from the show being like, I didn't even know what those were, but that display was so cool. Those animals were so beautiful. They looked so healthy. If we can have a show full of tables like that, I mean, to me, that would be, you know, that would be incredible. Um, Right. You know, to me, to me, those, those animals are are the ones that stand out of like, oh, wow, someone actually bred that. Right. Something that you don't even, you have nothing, nothing to do with in, you know, your day to day life, but you just see, a species that isn't commonly bred in captivity on a table, captive bred, like they have one of the parents there or something like that. Like, right. That, that, that to me is, is exciting about a reptile show. Um, that's to me, what used to be really exciting about them is that's where people would unveil the, the first this and that, or, or, you know, like mm-hmm. this is all right. I, I produce this. Uh, I mean, Tinley park, same, same, place but different example um you know back in the day when when gavin brink and uh and jason hood were producing the first mexicanas and stuff like yeah. that 
and they had those you know displays with like the wine glasses. Who else yeah, is like the wine glasses? Like that was so cool to yeah, me. Mm-hmm. I'm like that stands out more than two full row full rows of ball pythons. Ten like you know everything else of the show blends together when you have that snake right there like this like glowing yellow orange black and white striped snake slowly flicking its tongue with those giant mm-hmm. eyes if you actually right. love snakes you can't take your eyes off that thing right yeah like if you're in it for yeah, the love of the animal you just stare at that thing yeah you, know, yeah you might not even want to keep it that's just such a fascinating animal or um mm-hmm. like when jeff hartwig had some of the first albino olive pythons that were produced in the states at the shows like I mean, to, to me, that just like took my breath away. I'm like, mm-hmm. I know olive pythons. I love olive pythons. And now, boom, this like creamy yellow with these bright pink and red eyes. It's like, I didn't even know that was a thing. Or I've only seen yeah. two pictures of this. Like, and now here it is right in front of me at the show. Um, Can I- you know, social media has its ups and downs. But I think that's one of probably the uh, one of the most major downfalls of it to me was that, uh I, I don't believe shows will probably ever be the same, unfortunately. Mm. Um, you know, and that, that along with there being 10 shows every weekend in the country, yeah. like if you eat steak and lobster every night, you're going to come to grow tired of steak and lobster. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Like special things should be special. Reptile shows are special times. If you, if you can, mm-hmm. if you can go to it through a year and feel like I can miss Pomona and Tinley and Daytona, we've all done something wrong mm-hmm. to, well, to, to uh, a real enthusiast. That should be, that should be a destination. I'm taking off work. I'm saving up for my flight or I'm carpooling with five of my buddies. Like if it's not that we have all failed. Something went mm-hmm. wrong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I feel a little embarrassed to admit that I have never attended any one of those, <laughs> but it's, but it's all, well, it's, you, you, you haven't missed much these days, unfortunately. Well, it's been most of it. And he was supposed to be there, Pomona. You, be we, we, Pomona. I got to see Steve. Steven and I got to chat at Pomona together. I you got, would have been there too, Bill. I got deathly sick. It was rough. Uh, but I, I mean, I, I don't disagree with you. You know, um, there was the, uh, you know, at the risk of being a little bit biased, uh, Josh Marquis, I think, had brought the this was the first show where he brought the lavender albino Euromastix J ride with him to mm-hmm. Mona. And it yeah. was, a, it was a pretty remarkable thing to see. It's like people have seen pictures of them, but until you see those things in person, you don't recognize like, Jesus Christ, this thing's like a little radioactive Euromastix. Yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah. They're, they're wild looking, but also, um, you know, I feel like, and, the, and I, I feel like this goes without saying. And so I don't know why I, I feel like I really want to put this out there, but I feel like, I love that we all tend to use like the ball python. Ball python has like this, this like beating horse, like this thing that we just beat the shit out of all the time. It's like, well, we go to the damn, we go to the damn shows, and there's all these dumbass ball pythons. But it's like, ball pythons are cool, you know. Mm-hmm. You know? Oh, for sure. I mean, I'm with, I and I'm not, I'm not trying to give you a hard time at all. I'm just like, yeah. it's, it's something I do all the time. I really beat the crap out of ball pythons. Bearded dragons, corn snakes, leopard geckos, crested geckos. I really like, I hammer those markets, but I feel like most of us really have a beef with the, like the way they're treated as a disposable commodity more than we, you know, like the reality is if, if you've never seen a crested gecko before, 
you're going to shit bricks when you see one. You're like, whoa, this thing's nuts. Like those are badass animals. Same thing with really cool leopard geckos or really cool ball pythons. Like they're really, they're rad animals. And, and I feel like it's, I feel bad sometimes when I, cause I hammer them, man. Like I give them so much shit. I'm like, fuck well, these dragons, you know? It's, let's, just, let's change it to ball python people. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. I have a lot of friends. I have a lot of friends who breed ball pythons, but um, yeah. you know, there, there's there's truth to it though unfortunately sure. there is um, absolutely. You know, absolutely as much as you can't you know it's not the animal's fault and mm-hmm. you know oftentimes it's not even the fault of the people who even own them i, I think it's a fault of how people get introduced to reptiles mm, yeah the, the the loudest the loudest voices uh and, and and the people who catch the newbies you know i mean unfortunately there's probably not a lot of newbies who are listening to this show right now yeah um, i think that's but, true I think it would be great if, if they did, um, yeah. you know, <clears throat> that's why I like, for instance, in, 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 uh, in scrub pythons, some of the old guard were very, very gatekeepy, very mean to newbies, um, mm-hmm. you know, very protective of this is my thing. And even though I breed these and probably will need to sell them if I ever do fuck all of my customer base. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, and I came up in this game really, really young. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The only, the only thing that was working in my favor was that I was tall. Otherwise, <laughs> like, no one even, no one would look at me. And, and mm-hmm. with probably good reason, I, I was 13. Like, yeah. you know, you probably shouldn't sell a large Python to a teenager. Sure. Um, probably. But, <laughs> but yeah, I was the same way. Sure. I was the same way. I was a... 13 year old on kingsnake.com with Krebos and Spilotes and stuff. And I wouldn't tell anyone my age because I knew that if I did, they wouldn't give me the time of day. But as long as I was yeah. this anonymous screen name, you know, Oh, cool well, snake. Yeah. Let's talk about those. Yeah. There's, there's, there's a reason why I, I didn't ever show my face on Instagram until I was probably like 18 or so. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, so it, it's funny. Um, regular listeners of the show are going to, want to reach through the screen and punch me in the head when I say this, but like the, the similarity that this bears to the jujitsu world and the, the history of Brazilian jujitsu over the last hundred years is unbelievable. So like, let me just give a couple of, let me just give a couple, like two points to help emphasize this. Um, back when, like around when I started training and even, and, and actually a lot more before I started training, it used to be a thing where like, if you went and trained at another Academy, you were a trader. And if you showed that Academy, like what we did at our Academy, you were an absolute trader and, 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 and you were going to be outcast now. And how dare you share our Academy's techniques with these other, with the enemy. That sounds a lot like the gatekeeping that used to be up when we were first getting into herpetoculture. It's like these old, this old guard that was like, I'm not going to, they, oh, he had a secret incubation mixture. It's like, shut the fuck up, you crazy psycho. Like, it's not, that doesn't, that's not real, you know? And mm-hmm. and, and now you just mentioned um, there's like almost a capture of the, like there's almost a, a race to capture the new incoming people into the, into the field, into the market that participate in the niche. The same mm-hmm. thing is true of jujitsu. You know, one of the, one of the phenomena of the last like eight, nine years in jujitsu has been having to tell brand new white belts. Like you just saw this thing on YouTube. It's nonsense. 
It was just mm-hmm. meant to get your attention, but yeah. it doesn't actually work. And, 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 and it's not fair in some ways because like the new person doesn't know what they don't know. So it's right. not, it, it's not their right. fault. They don't know what they're doing. Right. But at the same time, right. we get, we can get really, really frustrated with the individuals who spend all their time and effort just to capture those new people to make a dollar you know, and that can be really frustrating. And it takes, there's like a filtration process where it takes a certain number of people to get through enough of the layers of bullshit and nonsense before they recognize like, oh, well, all these people on social media are just selling me clicks. But in reality, it doesn't matter what you use for incubation. And it doesn't matter what you're working with, you know, like what exactly you're working with or exactly how cool it looks on the TikTok video you made. At the end of the day, like what really matters is good quality practices and basic foundational fundamentals, whether it's herpeticulture or jujitsu. That's all it is, you know, and it's really, really hard. It's hard to convey this. Like, how do you how do you send that message to new individuals when they don't know what they don't know? How do you you know? And so I feel like I feel like this would bring us to a question that we had for you, which is like if you take a broad view looking at herpeticulture and if there was. If there was a, a couple of things, either one, maybe three things that you could change about the herpeticulture industry with a snap of a finger, what would those be? What would some of those things be? Uh, I mean, we could definitely go down quite the rabbit hole here. Um, yeah, you can't say ball pythons. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, and, and 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 that's not something that I that I would change. Um, I think to kind of start by piggybacking off of that i think just just like let's all just be nicer to new people yeah damn um, you know i yeah for sure man I, I had some wonderful mentors early on um some people who you know i had, had no other reason to to you know give me their time um like one guy in particular, uh one of the ogs of reptile podcasting his name is josh baby he's a ball python breeder in Chicago, we just happened to be set up next to each other at that reptile fest show. The first time I was ever bringing my animals there, I was like 12 or something like that. Um, you know, and he was breeding ball pythons and I was super interested in ball pythons and, you know, he took me under his wing and I saw his animals, learned a lot from him. Uh, I mean, when I was young, he, he taught me how to, how to palpate snakes. And that to me is probably my single like greatest tool with my breeding now. Um, is my having ability to, to, to palpate snakes. Um, mm-hmm. you know, people will ask me, Oh, how do I tell if my snake is cycling this? Oh, she looks kind of big. And with like scrub pythons and bolens pythons in particular, uh, a backed up shit can look like a follicle swell. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, right. have you palpated her? Like, well, I, how do you do that? I'm like, how is this not basic practice for snake breeding is learning how to palpate a snake. And, but then to tie it back in, you don't say to that person, how the fuck don't you know how to palpate a snake? Yeah. You teach them like you were taught whenever you were taught it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, you know, back when I was doing rodents, I was so busy all the time. I, I wasn't very good at responding to people all the time. But, but now that this is all I'm doing and I, I have time on my hands, I try as best as possible to respond to any and all messages, um, you know, a- answer questions because. I, I remember, you know, you know, cause it wasn't all that long ago, especially, you know, within, I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm really young. So 
I remember how it felt when someone actually took me seriously and answered my questions. Um, and with all the great, you know, mentorship that I, I had over time, I feel like all I can really do is pay it forward. Um, right. And I think if more people took that approach, we would just, we would be in such a better place overall. Like last week on uh, one of the scrub Python groups on Facebook, um, somebody who was clearly very new uh, commented or made a, made a post just asking how many species of scrub pythons there were. The first person who got to the comment was like, have you ever heard of Google? <laughs> like, uh, that's so harsh, bro. This person clearly came here because he wants to talk to an actual person about this. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Like, yeah. There's, there's a social aspect to this too. We're not just exchanging information. Totally. Like, we make yeah. lifelong friendships with this. Like, this person didn't just want to know how many species of scrub. If they, if that was truly the only motive there, he, they would have Googled it. Yeah, they exactly. Want to know, they want to know that. They also want to know who else is interested in this. Who can I mm-hmm. ask questions to? Who may I buy one from one day? Is there right. a community behind this? And that was one of the biggest things that was holding down scrub pythons in the past was the top-down gatekeeping, particularly from mm-hmm. one individual who's no longer involved in the, the species group, thank God. Um, and I, I mean, it did it to me. This, mm-hmm. this person yeah. reached out to me when I was new in, in the scrub pythons. was like, I heard you have some snakes. What do you got? And I'm like, whoa, this is so cool. This is the guy. And I sent him the pictures and I was all excited. He proceeded to tell me that none of my snakes were what I thought they were. They were all different localities, yada, yada, yada. In like in a mean way. Not like in a supportive mm-hmm. way, and I, I I asked, okay, what like, what am I what like why do you think that like what like what about their markings or their colors? Yeah. And the response was, uh, twenty plus years of doing this. Oh, oh, god damn, dude! It's like, <laughs> did, did you even That's read what my bugs me so questions? much, man? I hate that. I asked why why okay why is this Jaipura Manaquari? I've been doing this for 20 years. That doesn't tell me anything about the snake. Right. It doesn't change what my snake is. And then he proceeds to low ball trade offer me for my entire collection. Weird. So clearly I have better snakes than some that you have. You mm-hmm. reached out to me, demeaned my animals, talked down to me, and then tried to lowball me. Right. Yeah. Fuck yourself. Yeah, yeah. yeah like, and but and that's and I might be a customer for you. I mm-hmm. might spend $20,000 with you one day. Guess right. who's not spending $20,000 with you now? Me. Yeah. Because <laughs> you're also, a dickhead. And even, yeah. beyond the, even beyond the money, it's like, it's like basic decency. Keep a scrub yeah, just, in the first place. Like, yeah, oh, this is how these people act? I'm going to go to boa constrictors now. I'm gonna make or another maybe I don't want to do reptiles <laughs> anymore because everyone's such an asshole. Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 I, I mean, I... I'm going to make another jujitsu parallel. I mean, I've gone to so many seminars with so many world champions over the years. And like, there's been a number of them, like not going to name any names, but there's been a number that were just the worst straight up assholes to everyone who came to their seminar. It's like, dude, you're one of the best in the world. And all these people took time out of their weekend, paid you $150 for three hours of your time. And you're going to just sit and demean them here. Get out of here. Get the fuck out of here. I'm never coming and back to another one. Of your the biggest difference is we're not almost killing people. We like snakes. Well, 
I mean, <laughs> depending on what kind of, depending on what kind of snake, you might almost kill somebody. You know, like. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, if you're a newbie, you're not keeping any sort of snake. Oh, like no, no, for sure. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I just, I don't know. To me, unless you just have some yeah. really kind of deep-seated emotional problems, I don't, I don't see why you would treat another person that way. Got to be. I feel like a lot of it has to do with like, sure, some of it's someone being an asshole, and maybe they haven't done enough therapy, and they haven't done enough enough inner work to like kind of get their shit together and be cool with who they are and what they're up to. I also think that there's like a certain kind of person when they get really proficient or really well-known at a particular thing, they probably don't know how to handle it. You know, I mean, think about all of us, think about all of us who, who were, are into reptiles who were like, I mean, I've told stories on this show of getting bullied relentlessly for loving reptiles. Like, Oh, oh, dude, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Same thing for you. Right. And so like, if you spent most of your younger years being bullied, kind of being outcast, being a little bit of a loner, or maybe a nerd, having only a few select good friends, and then all of a sudden, because of some success you have putting snakes in a box and breeding them, all of a sudden you've got notoriety and you've got some clout mm-hmm. or you have more people than you've ever had try to bug you for your time or for your whatever yeah. And then you don't know how to handle that because you never had to deal with it before. And all of a sudden you find yourself doing the, the the thing that you got picked on or you hated people doing to you when you were younger. You know, I feel like it, 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 it's challenging and it's not cool and they shouldn't do it, but I can kind of, I can kind of walk myself to the end of the line in terms of why, how they got there. And it's infuriating. It bothers me just as much as it bothers you. You know, I, I can remember two specific instances once sending an email to Bert Langerwerf way back in the day uh, about bearded dragons because they had kept bearded dragons outside in Alabama. And then a, 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 a separate time calling Sandfire Dragon Ranch and getting Bob Mayu on the phone. And like, both of them were super cool with their time. I mean, you want to talk about, they couldn't be two bigger figures in herpetoculture. Mm-hmm. Both yeah. of them were very respectful and kind and generous with their time and like totally cool. Like, Hey man, you know, keep it up. You're doing a great job and thanks for calling. And I'm happy to talk to you. Thank you. You know, like that's mm-hmm. fuck. Yeah. Fuck. Yes, dude. Thank you. Thank you guys. Like rest in, rest in peace. Mm-hmm. Those guys, you know, uh, it's just, it's like, it's, it's that's fucked up. Like it's crazy that people will treat people so poorly. Yeah. I agree with you. Be nicer to new people. And and yeah. one thing that uh, was kind of another one of the, you know, things that I, I was fortunate enough to experience at a young age um, was, you know, I, I have been acquaintances to friends with, many of the most prominent figures in this industry ever. Mm-hmm. And, and that was completely because I uh, was fortunate enough to become friends with Forrest Fanning back when I was about 16 years old. And he took me to shows and zoos and this and that. And I was able to meet all these people. And when I'm meeting all of these high profile people that, you know, people who are really hardcore into this would consider celebrities, they're the most normal people in oh, yeah. the hobby. Oh, yeah. yeah. The, the, the higher up you get, the more, you can throw this guy into an office. You, you can throw this guy into, you know, a, a sales position. Like this is just, they're normal. The, the, the higher up you go in this industry, the more normal people are. Yeah. Um, and there's exceptions, 
most certainly. But that was, to me, it, it humanized the whole thing. It's like, there right. really aren't celebrities in what we do. You know, I mean, truly, there have been two celebrities in the history of herpticulture, Steve Irwin and, Bar- and Brian Barczyk. Sure. And one of these people is Brian Barczyk. And he was the most normal, chill dude just hanging out when the cameras were off. So right. that, that to me was like, okay, if these guys aren't taking themselves seriously like, like, like what we may think they are, why should anyone else? You know, yeah. if these guys who are the top of the top, the founders of the industry, making more money than than anyone else, if they're not taking themselves seriously, like this guy on Facebook who's on his high horse and, and yada yada yada, then 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 why are any of us taking ourselves seriously like that? Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm I'm glad that that was something that I was able to learn early on because I I'd like to think that I've never really been too much of a you know, egotistical involved in all of this. Um, I've def- I, I, I assume I've had my moments over time. Sure. But seeing people who are most definitely not that way and seeing how far they've gone was just more reassurance to me that like that type of, you know, just be, be nice to everybody, be charitable with your knowledge, with your time. That's only going to come back and, and, and benefit you at the end of the day too. And right. you know, benefit everyone who, who's around you. And if, if you have a reputation of being easy to talk to, being chill, not withholding information, that also gets around. Absolutely. And, you know, and and not that that should be your motive, but that's certainly going to be something that that comes as a consequence of of you being a good person. Is just that reciprocity will will happen with, you know, new new connections, new opportunities, new customers, whatever it might be. Um, mm-hmm. so, you know, seeing, seeing people like, you know, like Brian Barczyk or Bob Ashley, you know, people who are the top of the heap in this industry, I mean, Bill, Bill Brandt from Cormier Road and like, these are, they don't need to give me the time of day. I'm right. an 18 year old kid who likes reptiles who you don't know. I mean, like, like Jonathan Campbell, like, why does he need to talk? He doesn't need to talk to me, but here we are going through the collection. And, you know, mm-hmm. Carl Franklin was there too. We were looking at holotype specimens of abronia. I, I was so seeing cool. holotype specimens of, of scrub pythons, Bolin's pythons, like, Whoa. and these people were just, they were just nice. And they were, they just were like, Hey, I, I was, I was you too once. Yeah. Now it's my turn to, to give back. Like that, that to me is, is everything in, in this, this industry, because we want this to continue too. I mean, oh, yeah. I feel like, like my generation is is sparse mm. and it's most certainly sparse of serious keepers it's, it's more dense with the wannabe influencer keepers mm-hmm. um and i think it is it's good that those people are more towards the naturalistic keeping bioactive yada yada like the influencer types aren't you know showing off their freedom breeder rack in their bedroom um yeah but there's a lot of bullying a lot of drama yeah. a lot of superiority complexes like it's not all great but i mm-hmm. guess the, the the execution sucks but the actual subject matter could be worse i guess um yeah, at, least totally. at, the end, at least at the end of the day taking care of these animals well is i guess the focus but 
mm-hmm. it's just being done really poorly by a good number of these people. Um, yeah. So, yeah, there could be better communication, I think, all around around that stuff, you know. Yeah, and, and another thing, I think this is just how people act, but like, you don't need to be at the top of your self-proclaimed mountain by yourself. Mm-hmm. Like, other people being on your level doesn't hurt you. You know, I'm, I'm a believer in, in a high tide 100%. rises all ships. Like, 100%, man. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'll, 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 people like, hey, this guy has these scrub pythons for sale. I'm like, I'm familiar with him. And that was a great clutch, great animals. You'd have a great, you'd have a lot of success with those. Mm-hmm. I don't make that sale, but what, what am I going to do? No, don't buy those because of reason one, two, three. I make up because there is not a good reason for them not to get those snakes. And now maybe that gets back to that person somehow. And oh, look, now there's beef with two of the breeders in the space. And now here comes drama. And here Mm -hmm. comes Facebook arguments. I mean, like, you know, I have never been involved in one Facebook argument in my entire life. One, because I don't have time for it. And and two, it's like, if I'm not putting effort towards something that's going to be beneficial to me or others, why, why would I do it in terms of this, in, in terms of reptiles? Like, if I have extra time, I want to go, no you know, like watch some basketball or something or go to the gym or like mm-hmm. cook a nice meal, not bicker with someone about something about, about some meaningless topic on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I, I'd like to see more people, you know, act that way. Um, like recently a buddy and I just started a new uh, group on Facebook for scrub pythons. And, uh, with kind of the basis of it being like, this is, you know, anyone at any sort of level within this space is more than welcome where, you know, everyone's treated the exact same, whether you're, you've been breeding them for 20 years or you just heard about scrub pythons five days ago and want to, want to learn about them. Like everyone's welcome to, to share, ask questions because how, you know, that, that for one, that should be how every group, functions that shouldn't need to be emphasized unfortunately it does um Mm -hmm. but it it just benefits all of us at the end of the day and oftentimes you could get a question as an experienced keeper or breeder from a newbie that sparks a thought process that has never crossed your mind before yeah exactly because a new perspective comes to play and you're like i have never even considered what you just asked me Mm -hmm. and and now look now you've now you've just evolved your keeping based on a question that a newbie asked you like stuff like that to me is what this is all about. I mean, obviously, you know, this is, this is science at the end of the day, we're working with, you know, within biology, like science is not fact. It's just the evolution of information. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're not, you know, we're not people kind of treated at times like, like a religion. Like, (laughs) no, this is, this is the dogma of, reticulated pythons or this is the dogma of chameleons or just to, I don't know, hypothetical. Um, yeah. You know, I, I've had many moments in my, my career where I've either witnessed something or someone has presented me new information where immediately I have to bring into question almost everything that I do or a big part of what I do. And you feel it in the ego first where you're like, Oh fuck, I, I should be better than this. But then mm-hmm. if you can work through that emotion, use some critical thinking and 
be like, okay, what's what's priority here? Me feeling good about myself or me having the ability to change something for the better for my animals and for animals and keepers of the future. Like it's okay to be wrong. Mm-hmm. If you keep reptiles, yeah. it's okay to be wrong. It's only not okay to be wrong if you are wrong and are knowingly not working on correcting what's wrong. I mean, absolutely. Like that's, that's when it becomes a problem. Um, totally agreed. And, uh, and I, I think one thing that doesn't happen enough is, uh, pulling different tactics from, from different areas within reptiles. Um, mm-hmm. and something that I've been very fortunate, you know, I, I've kept and worked with all, almost all the pythons, lots of colubrids, boas, monitor lizards, you know, bronia, similar type of lizards, crocodilians, yada, yada, yada. And they're all, there's all kind of a different, there's a different framework for all of that. But a lot of that stuff can be applied to the rest of it. Like, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk these days about, about UV lighting and, and all that stuff. And, and a lot of like superiority complexes being, being, uh, created about lighting for your reptiles. Okay, so think about what that lighting is for. It's for processing of different minerals, calcium, G3, yada, yada, retinal health, yada. Okay, what, where do they derive the nutrients for those processes from the diet? Yeah. I mean, like Timberline created a whole product line. They're probably the biggest company within this this industry mm-hmm. to fix the problem of how nutritionally deficient bugs are gut yeah. loading exists in bug feeders there's emphasis on nutrition of the feeders right why not in rodent feeders yeah okay spend a bunch of money on lighting which doesn't have long history of testing and whatnot Lots of, and, and I, I use UV lighting, I, I have for a while. A lot of old timers will tell you it's a scam. Mm-hmm. I don't think I personally believe that. But if someone who's been keeping for 60 years comes to me and say, this has been working forever. I, I, I tried it, nothing happened. Mm-hmm. And now I've spent $200 on some bulbs that I'm not even going to use. Okay, well now that company just got their $200. Mm-hmm. That's a really kind of doom and gloom way to look at it. Um, yeah, and 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 it's not a way where you know that person's been keeping for fifty, sixty years isn't probably looking to change their methods. Right. Um, but yeah, I think exactly. it's, it's looking at an issue from from only one side to a very many sided issue. Mm-hmm. And why not why not have a higher quality diet for your rodents, richer in vitamin A, like you know, richer in all different sorts of nutrients, more natural type of diet. Like who's to say that that doesn't benefit the animal 10 times more than the lighting does. Sure. And, and, and totally. focusing on lighting for these, not for nocturnal animals. Does that seem like it's akin to their nature? How much, how much ultraviolet light will a nocturnal snake be, you know, what will they, will they experience? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. These are just questions. Totally. This is not me saying the answer. Not... The answer is almost always it depends. Right. You know, it's and, like, and it's, it's always nuanced. You know, we're talking about live animals yeah. and biology and it's like, these are, 
they're all, everything's in gradients. It's nothing, none and, of it's in and, black and white. And the thing that sucks is that most people look at it in a, in a black and white. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. You know, and that's where like, I don't get involved in conversations like that because you're not really going to get anywhere. You know, if, if two people mm-hmm. are having an argument about lighting on Facebook, they're just trying to convince the other one of their side. They're not actually having a conversation to, to, to advance their knowledge. They're just, they're, it's a debate. It's not a conversation. Yeah. Um, more often than not. Yeah. So, but then in a conversation like this, that's very much not what we're doing. I think this is where actual progress gets made, even as far as just, just getting the words out there to get people mm-hmm. thinking. The lack of actual independent thinking is let's 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 tie it all the way back to to one of the earlier yeah. questions. What do I want to change about herpticulture? Think for your damn self. Yeah, totally, man. You are a person, you have a brain, you have intelligence. You see the animal in front of you. You see how it reacts to this and how it reacts to that. Trust yourself, especially mm-hmm. as you become more experienced. Your eyes are not deceiving you. And oftentimes, you know, have, have your mentors ask questions. I'm not discouraging that. If you ask 10 different people, you might get 10 different answers. And now you're in a tailspin because, oh, I, I, this guy told me I should spray at night. And this guy told me I never spray my this or that. This guy mm-hmm. is a king running four times a day. What do I do? Like, yeah. calm down for one. Mm-hmm. Use some critical thinking. Whose climate is most akin to yours? Does your animal right. show signs of dehydration? Yeah. Like, do you need to be dousing that cage constantly? Or is your ventilation poor? Is it going to get stagnant? Is it going to mold? How warm's the ground? Like, there's a lot of different factors. If you're in Washington taking advice from someone in Florida who keeps their animals yeah. outside, maybe not the person to take direct advice from. Learn about how they do it but then try to apply it to your situation. Critical thinking can get you so far. And it, it's definitely tough because a lot of it is, is taught in the way of like dogma, like I was saying earlier, where this is, it's almost more of a religious text than a care sheet at times. Like this is how we do things in the chondro world. God forbid you have put a chondro in a bioactive setup. It'll be dead in five days. It's like, okay, so then how are Roy Sulfuris living in their bioactive setup? Mm-hmm. They're both just snakes. Green tree pythons and Amazon pumping snakes aren't so different that one will immediately die in a bioactive setup. Maybe your bioactive setup sucks. Yeah, totally. But then you can change it and then it's good. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. What What are the factors that that make it not work where you are? Right. Oh, you didn't even ever spot clean your bioactive setup. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's not going to work. Mm-hmm. It's not like you can just do that and leave it forever. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the 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 black and white thinking is is we'll we'll, we'll we'll couple critical thinking and and black and white dogmatic thinking in, into one. Um, mm-hmm. Another topic sure. that I that I've been really adamant on lately is, uh, I think in the mid 2010s in in like the Python world, there was a big push to tell everyone we've been overfeeding our snakes this whole time, mm-hmm. and there are some very 
good examples of overfed snakes out there. And mm-hmm. with that said, the people who were behind this were people like Dave and Tracy Barker and Terry Phillips, some of the most respectable, you know, historical figures in mm-hmm. this industry. And and they were right, and they were trying to combat something that was a serious issue. And then the echo chamber of the internet takes it and goes to the point where some people are like, if my snake doesn't look damn near emaciated, I'm abusing it. Right. It's like, no, they showed you a retic at prehistoric pets with fat mm-hmm. rolls so big it can't even move. Or ball yeah, pythons totally. that are sausages sitting in a tub. You can have healthy ball pythons in a tub. I do. I have three ball pythons that I've had yeah. since I was a kid. And I keep them in a tub like everyone else. But they're, I feed them like every three or four weeks because they are adults. They're over 10 years old. They've done their growing and they just need mm-hmm. to maintain. Mm-hmm. If you fed a baby ball python the way that I feed my adults, you are going to stunt the animal permanently. Yeah. It's not black and white. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, scrub pythons were hit pretty hard by this, this thinking. And between the time when that started and now, the amount of them that have been produced in captivity has drastically dropped. Mm-hmm. Right. And people will say, oh, I, I, uh, I stop, I feed them every three to four weeks, sometimes every five weeks in the summer. And then in the fall, I cut off their food until March. I'm like, it's not a, an Eastern milk snake. This thing doesn't brumate. It's metabolizing mm-hmm. that entire time. This is a tropical species. When would this snake ever except for circumstances that are dire of prey being absent from its environment, which would force it to find a new environment, would this snake ever be faced with that scenario in the wild? And during that six-month drought, if it saw a rat, it would grab it immediately. Right. Like, but there's, in, in, in an example like that, there's zero critical thinking involved. They heard <laughs> that from someone who they thought knew what they were talking about, and they're like, I'm going to do that. Under what circumstance would your snake ever have a, a feeding cycle like that? Mm-hmm. Like, do you even no. stop and think for two seconds that about what you actually are about to put your animal through because you heard someone else say it who you think has higher status than you? Like, that, 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 that to me is, is you know, it, it's scary because at the end of the day, it affects the health of the animals. Um, oh yeah. I, mean, I have animals that were raised very slowly from a previous owner that I, I mean, I, I'm getting to a point where I'm almost going to com- classify them as, as stunted because they should be mm-hmm. nine, 10 feet long now. And they're maybe six feet. Mm-hmm. And I've been feeding them the way that I feed my snakes, which is what I feel is adequate for a couple of years. And they're growing at a significantly slower clip than the animals that I produce that are the same mm-hmm. size, but two years younger. Mm-hmm. You can obviously take that too far where you yeah. have your obese sausage snake. But I think, especially if you've been keeping for a year or two, you can look at your snake and, and, and tell if you've been feeding it too much. Yeah, you, you should be able to. Like, yeah. I feel like a, a fat snake is not a hard thing to pick up on. Um, yeah. If you're seeing a and, lot of scale separation and stuff like that, then you're, you should probably tone it down. Around the bottom <laughs> jaw. And yeah. If the vent goes like that like you know yeah. like you can't see the spine I've, like there's yeah. pretty obvious signs that that your snake is fat yeah and then you just cut back on its feeding and mm-hmm. I, I think one thing that that a lot of people 
I just, I think just originally don't know about, and then also don't apply to their animals is, you know, most people, especially in the U S don't have almost any knowledge of, of nutrition for themselves. Um, you know, anybody who's ever been an athlete or whatever has had to learn about, you know, caloric deficits and macronutrients and and yada, yada. And you can apply all the same principles to your animals. For sure. Okay. We either need to add weight to an animal, subtract weight or maintain weight. (laughs) It's not this species eats this often. It's, it's what does this individual need? Right. And And what are your objectives with that individual too? Right. Okay. Is this, is this a breed or female? Okay. We're looking at a breed or female. Mm-hmm. The nature of the reproductive cycle will require that snake in the wild to not eat food for maybe upwards of six months mm-hmm. while developing ovum, ovulating and developing eggs, laying them properly and then defending them. If mm-hmm. that snake doesn't have reserves of body fat, there is no way in hell it can do that. Yeah, exactly. It just can't like that snake just will not be able to go through that process because in the wild, it's like, Okay. I'm a snake. I'm underweight. Mm-hmm. I will die if I do this. Yeah, it's, totally. It's not going to happen. Like it's it's very mm-hmm. basic biology. If I don't have the reserves to push through, I will die. So will all of my mm-hmm. babies. Mm-hmm. That's it's pretty pretty basic stuff. If yeah. this is a, a if it's a pet, okay, you can treat it differently. This thing is not going to go through reproductive cycles. You don't need mm-hmm. to have it gain excess weight at certain times of the year. You can exactly. You can just maintain if it's at a healthy body weight, give it an adequate meal every three to four weeks, or, uh, you know, if it's a colubrid every week, like, like, you know, just give it an appropriate meal. And if you can see that snake is maintaining that weight, you know, you're doing it right. Right. Mm -hmm. The evidence is shown right in front of you. And, but then that echo chamber off in Facebook land will make you question everything that you just observed that was accurate. They're like, oh, you know, I'm giving my carpet python a large rat every, every month and it's eight feet long and it's slender muscular. And then someone is like, Oh, that snake is obese. It has fatty liver disease. It's going to die in a month. You're like, mm-hmm. what? Like uh, my carpet pythons only eat small rats. It's like, mm-hmm. now you're going to, especially if you don't have the eye to critically assess the situation, you're going to go and do a, you know, a crisis mode of, Oh my God, I love this animal. Did I just abuse it? Mm-hmm. and it's like okay who who has a better take on this on the situation you with the animal in your hands you've raised it you take care of it every day or a person right. a thousand miles away from you on facebook who is just seeing a picture of it totally. right totally you know if you if you're a keeper if you're attentive if you think you do a good job trust yourself more because you will have a better take on your animals than anybody else because you're the one who is seeing them Yep. Trust yourself more. Exactly. True that. Well said, man. On on like the kind of like the other side of this coin, I'm curious if like there are any like broader trends or anything like that that you're seeing in herpetoculture right now that you're like excited about. Like, like I'm, I'm curious to see where this goes, you know, or like I'm stoked to see this as an emerging trend. Is there anything like that moving for you right Um, now? Yeah, certainly. Um, I think the, the move towards bioactive is, is Mm -hmm. one that I'm a fan of. Um, and I'm a fan of it for the principle behind it. Um, mm-hmm. and like kind of we're saying earlier, not quite so much of a fan of the execution mm-hmm. because for me, the principle behind it is how do we do better for these animals that we love? 
Right. If that's not if that's not anyone's, but you can do that in a rack system. You can do that in a cage with a simple cage with with bedding that you change ever so often. There's a lot of ways to do that. But if you know, no one's doing bioactive to mass produce something. Mm. You're just not. Mm-hmm. So I feel like innately with bioactive comes like you know, kind of like a sympathetic view of your animals and trying to just trying yeah. to do better for them um for sure there's a there's a ton of bullying in that space and it's pretty pretty disgusting to see uh, a mm-hmm. lot of elitism uh which at the same time is is you know i i hate to see it um but uh i think if if that could somehow be addressed or if new people can be talking about these topics in a in a more compassionate tone and mm-hmm. you know, like like a teacher, like imagine you're teaching third graders. You're not going to yell at your third grader how stupid they are because they did their math problem like this. I mean, not to equate new keepers to third graders, but mm-hmm. there's a level of empathy that needs to come with teaching someone a new thing. You know, if if you were brand new at something and, and someone just berated you and made you cry, you're not going to be so stoked on it anymore. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be so stoked on it anymore. So. I guess to kind of pull it back a little. Um, yeah, I, I, I like that a lot. I like that with that also comes an emphasis on being really particular about your collection. And uh, because to have bioactive enclosures, it takes up more space. You can't have as many animals. You got to be really particular with what you keep. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that will also come with a greater species diversity being produced in captivity. Um, you know, and I, I think that, you know, I mean, I, th- I think all three of us are, are examples of people who have taken species that were only almost historically ever available as imports and yeah. we're establishing them in captivity to where if those imports get cut off, we'll be good. Yeah. We'll be fine. You know, captivity totally. will be fine. Um, I mean, I have the genetic potential to produce like 11 or 12th generation Barnex grub pythons that are unrelated to each other, like where I can yeah. just keep crossing and crossing awesome. and crossing. Um, yeah, and that and that was a that was something that was on my mind as I was building up the collection. Was I I want to be able to do it the way that that I feel like would be the best in the long run. And we're not going to have that luxury with everything, just based on gene pool access. Um, but just for me, that's something that I I like that I can do. Um, mm-hmm. And not not to and that's not me being like, hey you you're those are half siblings. Fuck you. Yeah. No, the, the, the situations are are entirely you know individual on, onto themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like like the abronia, for instance. Um, mm. Ton tons of abronia came in for a while. Almost every single one of them died. Uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely tragic. I, I think that's probably so far the 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 greatest example of the hobby being the leading source of a species diminishing in the wild yeah uh where it tipped the scales of we're going to start assurance colonies to 500 are coming over the border a day yeah are these supposed to be critically endangered species how many of them are left Mm -hmm. you know but uh, fortunately a handful of people and and i'd like to put myself in that myself included have actually Mm -hmm. produced them and now there are captive bred animals that are in out there 
unfortunately, the gene pool of those won't be super deep. Yeah. Um, right. But to me, it's a whole hell of a lot better than the 500 coming over the border a day, how it used to be. Um, sure. So I guess I di- diverted there just for the sake of not sounding like an elitist. Um, but uh, but I, I think that that's a another kind of uh, side effect of, of the bioactive keeping trend mm-hmm. that'll that'll be beneficial in, in the long run. And you know, there's something really satisfying about making that difference. You know, like we don't need these aromastics come out of the wild anymore. We have these diverse bloodlines in multiple people's hands who are doing well with them. They'll be available to the public every year, but they won't be in as high of numbers because they're not being imported. So then we're going to have, you know, people who really care about them. We'll have to find where to get these animals might pay a little bit more, but we'll get an animal that's 10 times the quality of that wild caught mm-hmm. yada, yada, yada in the long run, so much better for that species. Um, obviously we can't do anything about animals being collected in the wild as much as we'd like to think we can as people in the United States, these people in Africa and in South America and Indonesia, mm-hmm. they're, they're going to do it. They're going to collect. And if they don't go to us, they're going to go to Japan, South Korea, you know, yeah. they're, they're going to go other places. Um, but you know, it doesn't mean that our small impacts aren't impacts, you know, that are significant to mm-hmm. us, to the animals you know, they might be, might be small, but, uh, but it's, I think it's better than nothing. And uh, yeah. I think it benefits everybody where when there's more species that are being bred, more more species emphasized these days, like on social media, more more things for more new people to learn. You know, I, I, I kind of, I guess I want to see, I want to see the hobby that I wish I could have entered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, Me too. And, and that's, you know, part of why I like to try to answer messages and just, you know, post positive things and, you know, comment on people's stuff when, when like someone has a clutch, congratulate mm-hmm. them on, on their clutch, you know, or be, be a source of, be, be that person you'd want to comment on your post. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you see that, that person you looked up to shoot you a DM congratulations on the clutch that's awesome let me you know just show me pictures when the hatch mm-hmm. that's a that's a great feeling that's yeah. an incredible feeling and if you can give someone else that feeling that's that's a significant that's a significant accomplishment in 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 my view um agreed so i guess we've we've, we've continued to go in circles off of, of topics but uh no but no yeah, i mean I this is that, what it's all about <laughs> yeah um yeah, I, 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 a shorter answer. I, I'd like to see eighty to ninety percent of the reptile shows go away. That would be mm-hmm. cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, make reptile shows special again. Um, yeah, I, uh, you know, we'll make some red hats if we need to. No, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, that that's. I, I think that would be that would be a cool thing to see. Um, mm-hmm. But then, then again, you know, that's also someone's living though, putting on those, those shows where they live. So totally. who, yeah. who am I to tell them not to run their shows? Um, 
But uh, I, you know, I, I respect the point, though. You know, it's like there is something about yeah, just like oversaturation, you know, and like yeah, I don't know. I think there's also like I think that there's also a very American uh, ideal of like um, choice, you know, like but 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 at the end of the day, when it's like the choice is like between like what brand of cola do you want to get? You know, it's like, do we really need that many different choices of different brands of cola? <laughs> you know, yeah. or it, it, it becomes a kind of funny thing at a certain point. So I get what you're saying there. Another thing I'm curious about asking you about too, just like, I mean, we're getting close to probably having to wrap pretty soon. We're already at two hours, which is awesome. Okay. But, um, sure doesn't feel I'm like I'm really curious. Like- <laughs> I know, dude, it's like, we can just do this. I mean, I wish we were all just like sitting in the same place right now because I feel like we would just keep keep rapping, but we will. We will eventually, but um, I would feel remiss if I didn't ask you about Herpeton because that's that's actually where I Mm. first met you. You know, um, you were, you're a young dude, you're there with Forrest and, um, you know, I went to that show knowing nobody. I, you know, I was just back in the hobby after being away for a decade. That was like a few months back um, for me. And, and, um, I'm just curious about like, for you, you know, as a, as a young person at that time, you know, um, going to that experience, being surrounded by all these legends, what was that like, like for you? Has it had a lasting impact on you? Cause that for me, I, I look back on yeah. that event a lot. I was just like, wow, that was actually a really special thing. And I didn't even, I wasn't even fully aware of that at the time. Cause again, it was yeah. like just this lucky moment that I happened to be able to go and, yeah. Yeah, I mean that was that that that's a weekend that won't be able to be replicated. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I, I was I was exhausted. The the weekend before I yeah. had moved my life from, from Chicago to Indiana. Um so and on top of that, doing all the road and shipping and you know, preparing mm-hmm. to leave, I was exhausted. And then we got, you know, we all got dragged out herping every night after uh-huh. uh, you know, after listening to talks all day, but, uh, I wouldn't have had it any other way. Um, it was, I mean, you know, to, to talk to some of these people who I had looked up to for so long, you know, only heard the names and, you know, people like Justin Julander and Bill Brandt, you know, Philippe Mm -hmm. de Beaujolais, um, you know, we could go on, you know, Alan Rapashi, like we can, we can name everybody who was there. Um, Nick Mutton, like to be, to be like, to feel kind of like a peer for a minute mm-hmm. was weird. Cause I don't see myself like that at all. Yeah. Um, and, but, but kind of tying back to what I was saying earlier about these people who are at the top of the, the industry, kind of having the best heads on their shoulders and, and being the most humble, you wouldn't know that these guys were, were the shit like that. You wouldn't know that they were the founders yeah, of totally. the, the industry. Like, you know, we go to a Tinley Park or a Pomona and these are the people we have to thank for it. Like you wouldn't know by talking to them. They were just reptile mm-hmm. nerds who were there, wanted to learn about reptiles, wanted to talk to their friends that they don't see very often because we all live in different parts of the country or even the world. Like mm-hmm. it was, it was, it was a crazy, like it just it felt like a dream for a weekend. Like yeah, how, dude. how is this, how is this real? Like how it's, a, it was a small group too. This wasn't a big conference. There's no, what, no, maybe 50, 60 people there. And that might even be a high Seems estimation. Like it, yeah. Yeah, and probably. 
you know, and, and a lot of the industry leaders for the last number of decades were there. Yeah. It was just, it, it was a lot of heavy hitters. God, it's something that would be so hard to replicate. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, the talk at the end about the legislation and, and how we should all proceed, you know, that, that was, that was an interesting one to me because we can get into the same echo chamber space online with that mm-hmm. issue. Um, you know, one thing that was, what I was thinking about earlier today, just as far as like what to talk about tonight was um, mm-hmm. back at the beginning of, of, of 2021, uh, you know, mm-hmm. the, the administration just changed over and very, very clearly the animal rights groups were waiting. They were waiting in the mm-hmm. wings. So like we have a, a conservative, uh, executive branch in there. Mm-hmm. Let's bide our time. I did not mean to say that like that. <laughs> Let's bide in our time, and uh, <laughs> and then they they it hit so hard. National legislation, state legislation, stuff going down in Florida, back to back to mm-hmm. back. Um, it, it was it was a scary time to be like, are we losing our rights right now? Mm-hmm. Like, is this is this happening? And obviously, coupled with that was the push for donate to U.S. Arc, uh, you know, awareness for U.S. Arc. And I love U.S. Arc. I've known Phil since I was 12 years old. He's one of, mm-hmm. you know, one of my favorite people in the hobby. The amount of bullying and shaming, superiority complexes that were formed over that was disgusting. Mm-hmm. absolutely disgusting there was some downright shameful behavior at that time um you know to the point where like you felt like you needed to put your membership status in your bio on instagram and facebook or or people are gonna come after you Mm -hmm. um when all this time we have a common enemy who's not ourselves we are under attack by others and we are attacking ourselves. Mm-hmm. What the fuck are we thinking? Mm-hmm. Like, I, you know, people were were going on to like lives on social media saying, this is all crashing and burning. All the pet stores are going out of business. Petco and PetSmart won't have reptiles anymore, which means feeders are going to be $100 a piece. All these companies are going out of business. And I'm like, does this seem like the way to approach a sensitive issue that we're dealing with right now <laughs> like like we're, we're dealing That's, with the future of our not. industry <laughs> should we should we fear monger and like terrify everybody who is for one financially but also very much emotionally invested in this you know this right. is my life it's, it's a lot of our lives like mm. Should should that really be the approach of fear mongering and bullying and shaming? Like people should only be led into a reptile expo if, if they were a US ARC member or something I heard. I'm like, what the mm. fuck are you talking about? And why are we weaponizing US ARC? Mm-hmm. Shouldn't this be the one thing we can agree on? Is that mm-hmm. we should have representation when it comes to the laws that are made about what we do? Right. Like, should that be the thing that we don't fight about? Like, can we, can we, can we pick one thing where we just let that be what it is and support it and not fight about, should we be fighting the animal rights groups that are 
taking their cult-like beliefs and trying to change our lives to no ends other than to just fulfill some sort of weird prophecy that they have of animals mm-hmm. and humans having no contact. Like it's, it's, it's clear why they they chose reptiles first. We don't have financial backing when we don't have mm-hmm. a strong community. They didn't go right. after bird people. That would be a much harder thing that, you know, the, the avian mm-hmm. world, the yeah. rehabbers, like the, you know, that would have, or fish, that would have been a mm-hmm. much harder first target. There's a reason why we were the first target. We were the yeah. easy target. And we're just continuing to be an easier and easier target. And yeah. it's all because of how we treat it. Right. And, and you know, and, and un- unfortunately, especially when it comes to like the Florida legislation, a lot of it came down to a couple of bad actors who ruined it for the rest of us. And, and, and oftentimes those people are revered within our industry mm-hmm. uh, which to, to me i mean not, i'm not not something i want to go deep on but it's just like wow it, it really sucks to, to to kind of to realize like some of the people who theoretically are looked up to the most are actually doing some of the most damage to the very thing that we love mm-hmm. and that they make money mm-hmm. on right um so but I, I guess with that said that the talk about all of that was was very interesting and it was it was definitely it, it was it was kind of generationally divided i feel like on who mm-hmm. said this was the answer that was the answer mm-hmm. which i i found found interesting um but you know it, it i think it just it speaks to all the, the resistance in the old guard to uh, embracing social media and embracing the changes you know i think and, and and to their defense, I think I probably would too if I was in, in a similar situation. Um, but the the loudest voices, unfortunately, are some of the voices that we don't want to be the loudest. But yeah. in a moment like that, and that that was one thing that that Forrest was saying, which no one else had brought up, was like the eyes are on the pet tubers, for better yeah. or worse. That's where the eyes are, um, and they they are subjected to the same laws that we are so why not why not try to you know bond together against a collective enemy even though we may not love these the the you know the reason why some of these people are doing what they're doing and mm-hmm. and i don't think there's there's one answer to that either but i think it's a philosophically an interesting thing to think about it's like okay are, are we willing to compromise our how we think is you know like the right way to go about doing this are we willing to compromise that to be able to keep doing it and to what degree then are we are we willing to compromise that for how long are we willing to compromise that um because i know i'm not willing to fully compromise that personally right um but i i'd much rather come to some compromise than lose the ability to do what i do yeah so, totally yeah and, and you know nothing that we're gonna no problem that we're gonna solve right now and, and we just i guess we're just lucky enough that us arc is is as good at, at what they do as they are because there hasn't been any new national legislation like that for probably a couple of years now you see small mm-hmm. local ones pop up from time to time you see the emails and the facebook posts and and all, more than more times than not those bills don't go through yeah I, I think exactly. i think honestly i think the reptile industry and that uh sense is, is benefiting from some of the international turmoil in the world it's like 
we're mm. dealing with 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 Russia, Ukraine, and 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 mm. Israel, Palestine. We don't have time for your snakes. Mm-hmm. You know, if it gets snuck into a bill, it's like take that bullshit out of that bill. Like we're we're dealing mm-hmm. with bigger things. We need to, you know. So I I, I think there are definitely bigger fish to fry. Yeah, yeah. So not that any of that <laughs> would be something that I want to happen, so we don't have to deal with our legislation. But yeah, I think that def- I think that's played a role. I think I think it has. If you just kind of look at the overall situation, like you know, mm-hmm. back back when when all these bills were being pushed in the beginning of 2021, you know, we weren't dealing with with international. Mm-hmm. We weren't dealing with World War Three. Um, yeah, I feel like there was there was more room in the in the political bandwidth for something like that to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if I have a point with that, but. <laughs> No, no, that's fine. It's something, it's something that 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 I've I've thought about recently, and I'm like, maybe there's some sort of correlation. But I, yeah. I'm not a political science major, or I'm not a lawyer. Nor I am I. Know. <laughs> yeah, it would I am, just random baseless am, speculation on my part. No, yeah. I am. It's fine. I feel like I can just solve. Phil's this. the expert. Thanks, yeah. Phil. Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's so stupid. <laughs> well. <laughs> <laughs> well listen dude we uh we're getting around uh the mark where i think we're gonna have to close out for this one um okay. but uh but i we have uh we, well first of all i think we we definitely have to do this again because for sure uh, absolutely yeah that's, we're just getting started yeah yeah that's cool we got a lot to talk about yeah. <laughs> it's great it's perfect yeah, I feel like a lot of these shows are the these are the ones where it's like the most interesting kind of stuff where it comes out kind of at the margins of herpetoculture where it may, might sure. not be directly related to what we do. Uh, excuse me, but the um, basically we have we have kind of a like a like a relatively well known closer cre- question that we ask everyone, and yeah. and that question is why herpetoculture, and so that can be like. Why do we do it? Why do you do it? Why should we do it? Why shouldn't we do it? You know, take it as broadly or as specifically as you like. Um, but yeah, why herpetoculture? For for me personally, honestly, at this point, I think it's just for for me. There's no other option. Mm. It's just it's been it's been the constant in my life. It's gotten me through the hardest times of my life. Um, it's given me purpose um it's given me something to look forward to waking up to the next day mm. give me something to, to you know a way to set goals for 10 years 20 years 50 years um mm-hmm. you know in a in a world that's increasingly more depressing everywhere you look and all the depressing mm-hmm. stuff is is put in your face now more than ever before by a million fold yeah um for sure you know walking through my my adult scrub room and seeing two pairs locked up just just brings you know an amount of uh, joy to me fulfillment um you know it, it's something that i can feel like i've i've accomplished something that i that, and that has a bigger bigger purpose than me um mm-hmm. you know I, I think a lot of times people can kind of virtue signal with the whole conservation thing sure. but there's a very real a very real aspect of that to what we do and, and more than I feel like direct conservation uh, effect that we can have by breeding it's conservation effect that we can have by educating people and just raising awareness about, about these animals, yeah, letting people sure. know that they even exist to begin with, 
Um, mm-hmm. Cause how are you going to care about something you don't know exists? Right. And, and you can't really blame anybody. You know, there's, there's plenty of animals that I don't know exist that are probably going extinct right now. You mm-hmm. know, that's a fucking shame on a, on a number of, of fronts. Um, and I think, you know, as much as we've highlighted benefits of social media and downfalls of social media, that's a huge benefit of social media is the ability to get that message out there easier than, than ever before at, at zero cost. Um, so why herp to culture to me is just, this is my life. This is, mm-hmm. you know, what I, what I care the most about. And, uh, and and not only do I I love it for the animals I, I love it for the relationships that I get to make with people through it, you know my 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 favorite friends who I've ever had through this this world of reptiles are the people that I you know I can hang out with for a whole day and and not talk about reptiles one time. Yeah, totally. You know, right. you know at, at the end of the day, doing this in a in a in a solitary state is pretty lonely and and, and sad. You know, being able to have a clutch of eggs and, you know, send a picture to your your five friends who you talk to about these snakes makes that clutch that much better, that much more gratifying. Um, right. You know, I mean, I, I'm all the way across the country from my family, um, you know, growing up doing this, uh, it was very difficult to make friends. I, I don't have any friends from my childhood um, mm-hmm. other than like people who were my reptile mentors who were 20 years older than me. Um, mm-hmm. that's, that's not true. I, I, I have one friend uh, he, he was a guest recently, Alex Myers. Uh, yeah, yeah. Alex is the man. Alex and I met at the wildlife discovery center and we were about 14 years old. So, um, it's awesome. But, uh, and you know, some of my favorite times are just talking to him on the phone and he's telling me all of his stuff about his self and dragons. And I don't know much about self and dragons, but just hearing how much he cares about them is just, is so much fun for me to, to listen to. And it, it inspires me to, to approach what I do in a, in a way that I feel like I could you know, step my game up because I don't know damn near anybody who cares about their thing as much as he cares about his thing. Right. Um, oh yeah, dude. It's real and, deep passion. You know, like people at shows will ask him to identify sale fins for him that they, that, that they just got in on an import. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like I don't even yeah, know for sure. Yeah. Right. But, uh, let me go ask this you know, guy in his early twenties. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but to to me, that's that's so cool. Uh, yeah, it's awesome you know, to be able to, and that that's to me so much more meaningful than what I see a lot of people in my age group doing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and as, as as isolating as that might be to kind of waver from what's kind of considered normal, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I I'd rather do it this way than than the other way. Um, so yeah, to me, the, the hobby, the reptile community, yada, yada, it's it just, it's been my life for so long now that, uh, it's just, it's everything to me. Right. Oh yeah, man. That was a great answer. Very yeah. well said. Lots of layers to it. I, I relate to a lot of it and, um, yeah, man, where can folks find you if they want to get in touch and, and, you know, inquire about scrubs or just follow along with what you're doing. Where's the best yeah, places for that? Just, uh, Instagram and Facebook. Instagram is at scrub shepherd. Facebook, just my name, Stephen Cush. Uh, if anyone is interested, uh, the, in the new scrub Python and Bones group, it's just Somalia, the genus name on Facebook. It's, uh, cool. it's brand new, but we'll see what we can do with it. Um, 
there's obviously plenty of other good groups out there as well. A lot of good information. Um, but yeah, that's where you can find me. And, uh, yeah, that's the, awesome, man. That's the nice, dude. Well, I look forward to the next time we do this. Like, like, like yeah, Phil said, it feels absolutely. like this is like, this is part one of what will be many parts, I'm sure. So thanks again for the time, as, man. It's been as a pleasure. you can tell, I, I can talk forever on a, on a podcast. So whenever you want to do it. We're the same way. And also it's perfect yeah. for me because I like to listen more than I like to talk. So it's great. Yeah. <laughs> same. You All right. I'm talk, talk too much. <laughs> keep, keep that whiskey flowing. Hell yeah. yeah there we go. Oh. <laughs> All right, I'm going to hit the button with that one. <laughs> <laughs>